Hey listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why writing a blog post probably won't convince Mr. Putin to reassess his Ukraine policy. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Many of you have likely heard of today's guest, journalist Matthew Iglesias, and I give him a thorough intro in just a second. So all I'll say for now is that I really enjoyed listening back over this interview, even though I was down and out with COVID when uh, Kieran sent it to me. Before that, though, a reminder that we've got two job opportunities here at 80,000 Hours, which you might want to think about applying for. First off, we are hiring career advisors to join our one-on-one team. In brief, our advisors basically do video calls with hundreds of talented and altruistic people with the goal of helping them find the highest impact career that they can. We found that people from a pretty surprising range of professional backgrounds can be really good at that. And if you'd like to hear more about what it's like, you can get a taste in episode 75, Michelle Hutchinson on what people most often ask 80,000 hours. It's a London-based role with a starting salary around £65,000, and applications are closing very soon on the 20th of February, so I won't get a chance to remind you about that one again. We're also hiring a new head of job board to improve and expand our job board. If you'd like to check out what the job board currently looks like, you can find it at 80,000hours.org slash jobs. It's already a really popular service, but the new job board lead would be responsible for figuring out how the board can help even more people find jobs where they have a huge impact and also manage the team that works on it. That's also a London-based role and a typical starting salary for someone with five years of relevant experience would be something like £72,000 a year. You've got an extra week for that one as applications are closing on the 27th of February. If you'd like to learn more about either role or what it's like working at 80,000 hours in general, head to 80,000hours.org slash latest and scroll down a bit to the blog posts announcing each position or use the links in the show notes. If you know someone who would be perfect for the role, do let them know ASAP so they have a chance to put in an application in time. All right, without further ado, I bring you Matthew Iglesias. Today, I'm speaking with journalist Matthew Iglesias. Matthew originally studied philosophy at Harvard and started blogging before it was cool back in 2002 at the age of 21. That got him a bunch of attention, and he went on to write columns at various US magazines, including The American Prospect, The Atlantic, and Slate. In 2014, he joined Ezra Klein and Melissa Bell, among others, to co-found the news website Vox, which has since grown to become a very well-known and widely read online publication. Matt initially took a management role at Vox, but ultimately found he preferred to work on the creative side, hosting the US policy podcast called The Weeds, as well as writing regular columns. In 2020, he left his job at Vox to write his own personal subscription newsletter called Slow Boring using a service called Substack. And this quickly attracted uh, many paying subscribers, both increasing his income substantially and setting the example (laughs) that subscription newsletters could be a viable model for independent journalists. On the book front, back in 2012, Matt wrote The Rent is Too Damn High, which argued that single family residential zoning was causing massive harm in the United States. This popularization of academic research helped mainstream the Yes in My Backyard movement, or the Yimby movement, which has since gained many supporters and achieved some major legislative victories in recent years. Then last year, in 2021, Matthew also wrote One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger, in which he argued that the US should aim to triple its population by making it more practical and appealing for people to have children, as well as dramatically increasing both skilled and unskilled immigration. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me. I hope we're going to get to talk about your views on foreign policy and how to use opinion polling. But first, as we ask everyone, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? I mean, I work on a a wide variety of subjects simultaneously, uh, trying to publish five or more columns a week. Uh, But something that, you know, has been a a theme of mine that I'm working on a piece on right now, and I think 
is going to continue to be an important subject that's, I think, very aligned with with your audience is trying to get people to think outside of the day-to-day hurly-burly of COVID-19 policy and more to think about pandemic prevention and, you know, biodefense issues as a theme that we should be, you know, grappling with on a forward-looking basis because there will be more variants, there will be more viruses, things could be worse in the future than what we've just been through over the past two years. And yelling about, you know, who needs to wear a mask when is ultimately less significant than can we, you know, improve our readiness to prevent the recurrence of this kind of problem. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have a few questions about uh, that later on in the interview. And also a couple about a few listeners were curious to know kind of what voodoo magic or perhaps what deal with the devil you've made to be able to produce so much content <laughs> as well as uh, being so, so, so active on Twitter almost every day. But first off, you're kind of a really widely read guy who I guess has the specialty of being a public policy generalist. And you also tend to be pretty game to do your best to answer just any, any sort of random hard questions. So I basically wanted to rapid fire you a bunch of issues where I don't already know your views, uh, despite the fact that you have uh, published and published and uh, <laughs> said, a, said a lot on other interview shows. And though you're not an expert on these topics, I think you do have uh, plenty of relevant knowledge. So I'm curious to know what you think. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Lightning yeah. round. Uh, feel free to skip if, uh, if you don't have a solution to some of these quite bedeviling problems. Okay. Yeah. What, if anything, would you like to see governments do about the growing capabilities and use of uh, autonomous weapons? I mean, this is not a super deep suggestion, but it, it seems like you need to have some kind of international summiteering about it in the way that the U.S. and Soviet Union, you know, tried to do these arms reduction treaties about the stockpile of nuclear weapons because mm-hmm. countries are not going to unilaterally want to disavow autonomous weapon systems. But it's you can imagine an arms race in that area is even more dangerous than mm-hmm. than the arms race with nuclear ballistic missiles. Yeah, I guess the interesting thing about autonomous weapons is it seems to be actually somewhat leveling the playing field between richer countries and and, and poorer countries, that it's allowing countries that don't have as impressive militaries to uh, potentially create a lot of trouble for more powerful nations. And it it might be quite challenging to get them to give up that ability, especially, I guess, as even that the powerful nations don't seem super keen to give up (laughs) the option of autonomous weapons either. No, I mean, it's a, you know, this is a a challenging problem. But, you know, that being said, there was a a way world history could have gone after 1946 in which you would have said something similar, right? That, you know, just a small stockpile of atomic weapons gives medium-sized countries a great deal of protection against great power bullying. You know, you can, I I think it's a very sympathetic to the regime way of looking at it, but Mm. this is how the Iranians would say, you know, their nuclear experiments have gone. But there was a successful move to really sort of stigmatize that, have a small number of countries monopolize the nuclear weapons, then have them negotiate with each other to try to reduce the amount that's in existence. So I don't think it's in principle impossible to do, but obviously quite hard. Yeah. I mean, the same is true actually of chemical and biological weapons. And in in a sense, the the technological barriers there are even lower. And yet we have successfully managed to massively reduce their use, I think, relative to some counterfactual history where they were totally normalized. Yes, yes. I mean, and you know, I mean, biological weapons, we don't think that much about these Mm. days, because I think we believe we've had a lot of success there. But it's also something, you know, worth worrying about more. Um, You know, obviously, the risk of biological warfare spilling over into the rest of the world is extremely high. Mm, Yeah. Okay. Which country do you think the United States should be doing more to cultivate a closer, closer alliance with? Maybe one that it kind of is currently neglecting a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I think there's a pretty obvious answer, but that India is kind of the one that's on the table. I, you mm. know, the U.S. has historically been aligned with Pakistan against India in South Asian security crises. Now that we are not present in Afghanistan, we do not have the same kind of dependencies on Pakistan as we used to. And there's a lot of alignment on values with India mm. and, you know, strategic reasons for that as well. Yeah. Do you take on why it is that, I mean, the US is pursuing, I think, a, a friendlier, closer relationship with India, but it seems like it could be doing more. Do you have an idea of maybe why it's not? I mean, I do think that the involvement in Afghanistan has been a complicating factor in that for a long time. The, the Bush and Obama administrations and certainly Trump all made efforts to sort of draw closer with India. But, you know, India is very invested in its relationship with its neighbors. Pakistan is very invested in its relationship with India. As long as the United States had thousands of soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan, we needed to prioritize their safety and their security. And that really limited how far we could go with India. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. What are some likely impactful or evidence-backed interventions for reducing the harm done by racial and other prejudices in the workplace? A listener submitted this one because you'd recently written a bit about this topic, including pointing out that there are some interventions that have been tested and found not to work. But are there there any that you are more positive about? You know, I mean, I think that One thing that we see is that actually some of the things that are done in the name of racial tolerance training are directly counterproductive, Mm. right? So not doing that would be good. (laughs) Um, And I think that changing the legal liability standard that has generated those programs is one that we could do. That Right now, at least in the U.S., I assume different countries have different frameworks for this, but in the U.S., the understanding of businesses is that if you do something that is called, you know, diversity training, that that gives you a lot of protection from anti-discrimination lawsuits. Uh, So that both reduces the incentive to, like, actually address racial discrimination among Mm. your staff and also to put forward training programs that generate backlash and and backfiring, right? Mm. So to develop a, a legal doctrine in which people are held accountable for discriminatory practices and are not immunized by saying, oh, we did some training, that creates a situation in which, you know, big businesses that have a lot of money to spend and have big legal teams have to say, look, well, we need to invest in research. Like, is there something we can do that Mm. will actually improve the situation rather than what they're doing right now? Yeah, I guess I guess you could go further and say that companies not it's not enough to uh, just put on programs that say that they're anti-racism or, or anti-prejudice. Uh, they actually need to put on programs that have been demonstrated to have positive impacts. Well, it's it's I think you measure by outcomes rather than by inputs, right? right? Okay. So if you're going to be penalized for discriminatory practices, Mm. then it's in your interest to come up with a way to have less of them happen rather than being rewarded for having the program. Yeah, that makes sense. What should we do about the problem of animals suffering in factory farms other than the uh, natural answer of, you know, supporting the development of alternative protein sources or, or meat alternatives? I mean, the good news, if you want to call it good news about factory farms, is that they're so bad that there's a lot of room for regulatory improvements at the margin, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, relatively small scale changes. I think we've seen some states outlaw the worst kind of egg laying crates, um, the worst kind of gestation stuff for, for pigs. So, you know, that's like an obvious approach. I think it's the one animal rights groups are taking, mm-hmm. but it seems really worth supporting to me. 
Yeah, I spoke to uh, Leah Garces last year and she pointed out that any regulations that you put in place to improve animal well-being on farms that then increase the price of the products actually causes some people to shift over to using the often more expensive alternative protein sources, which then like builds that industry and helps it to, to reach, a, reach a large scale. And so potentially there's like these like follow through R&D impacts that are, could be quite large. Right. I mean, it's it's potentially a, a virtuous circle in which you are producing animals in more humane conditions. It's more expensive to do it that way. There's more incentive to switch. There's more value in, in researching the other things and also potentially more value on the animal husbandry side mm. in finding cost-effective ways to raise animals more humanely. Yeah. Feel free to skip this, but are there any kind of specific animal welfare changes to farms or is that, or is that uh, maybe maybe getting too specific to be out of your area? I mean, it's it's deeper into the weeds than than I know. Mm. I mean, something I, I'm sure is familiar to your listeners is just the crude fact that chickens are sort of by the numbers, mm. the overwhelmingly predominant farm animal. So even very small improvements in the welfare of chickens has an incredible sort of aggregate impact. I think that's something a lot of, um, you know, like the person in the street has not thought that through in that exact way but it's it's actually very very important if we can make chickens lives slightly better yeah this one i'm not surprised i haven't heard you asked on on other podcasts so at least as far as i know what should we do about animals dying of hunger cold heat or thirst in the wild you know this is something that just got on my radar recently as even a topic that exists Mm. and it kind of blew my mind I feel I may be wrong, and this foundational work may have been done someplace else, but from what I could see looking around in it, I feel like a lot of the just the very basics research wise need to be done here because it seems like wild animals are living in a fairly Malthusian kind of condition. Yeah. And so you worry. I saw one proposal to say, well, we should actually be vaccinating wild animals so that they they suffer less from disease, which that's interesting. That sounds like an interesting thing to say. Mm. But then I started worrying, well, are you going to increase the number, but, you know, make their welfare even worse yeah. uh, by doing that? I, I honestly don't know. You know, you would really need to sort of, we have a lot of people who study wildlife. Uh, it's a It's a field that exists. But I think that the welfare of animals is not something that we have thought about a lot as a society mm. versus just preserving their their habitats yeah. and really just to ask scientists to you know try to help us understand better what the consequences would be of you know less disease out there unfortunately we can't as far as i can tell you know ask predators to use humane slaughter methods which would be a you know that would be a clear win yeah. but i have no idea how you'd achieve that yeah yeah, I guess the, the thing that jumps out that you could try to do is to do for uh, wild animals, at least the larger mammals, the same thing that has happened to humans, which is, you know, make the resources that they need more abundant, but at the same time have some level of restraint, like whether imposed or uh, or self-generated on uh, on reproduction. So you don't just get all of the gains eaten up by by higher population. But <laughs> yeah, you do that. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Right. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I know there's efforts, you know, not for humanitarian reasons to use contraceptives to control rat population mm. sizes in urban areas. And that does not seem to have succeeded all that well. You know, if it was working, Mm. right, if this was like brilliantly reducing wild rat populations in Washington, D.C., I would say, wait a minute, we should apply this inside um, with the wild animals. But, you know, in the general subject of 80,000 hours, I mean, this feels to me like an area in which we could use more smart people just like not, not working on the policy question, but like actually space. like, like, like what can we do here? Like, do we understand this issue? Do the technologies work? And mm. if they did, I'd be happy to say like, well, let's go out. Let's go use them. Yeah. Well, let's at least let's see what happens when we try it on a small scale. 
Yeah, what's an area of science that deserves more funding than it currently gets, even if that funding kind of had to come at the expense of, you know, other other government funded science? Well, you know, I, I guess we were we were just talking about one that I think is interesting here. You know, I think that we have seen that vaccine development is very promising area mm-hmm. and that I have been a little taken aback to learn sort of how little real effort goes into that on a day-to-day basis, that there are scientists who believe you could develop vaccines that target whole virus families. Mm. Um, And, you know, they have like some money, they have jobs and things, but, you know, the advanced market commitments that were made to help spur the mRNA vaccines for, for COVID, that seems very useful, right? To tell people, look, if you make this, we will buy 7 billion doses of it. That might involve spending no money, but it might involve spending a very large amount of money, and it could help sort of drive, you know, private sector dollars, innovation in a very useful way. Yeah, I'll stick up a link to uh, maybe the Wikipedia entry on uh, advanced market commitments and why they're potentially uh, really useful for, for spurring innovation at the commercialization level. Yeah, should we direct more biomedical research to slowing down the rate at which people age? I mean, I'm not against that. That's one where I have trouble seeing why the private market wouldn't deliver on there. Hmm. I feel like there would be a lot of money in an anti-aging pill. Yeah, uh, You point. know, targeting the developer. I mean, again, if somebody tells me I'm working on anti-aging research, I'm not going to be like, like, what the hell, man? Like, that's horrible. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I, I tend to think, right, I, the basic sort of biomedical issue tends to be that, well, we have a lot of private R&D for problems that are common and that impact rich people, hmm. right? So, you know, baldness, aging in general, things like that. Whereas, you know, malaria is a big deal, but the people it affects are mostly poor. And so we could really use more public sector or philanthropic money in there. So I don't know. I I mean, I I, I will change my view on that if someone tells Mm. me there's a huge market failure there, but it seems like something that that commerce should address. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good point. My guess is that the anti-aging folks might say something like, we really are able to make massive progress on this in our lifetime and might be able to get to a product that's broadly useful, but it is decades away. And so you know, anything that we uh, research now or patented now would have expired by the time you could actually make mm. a product. So you kind of have this gap between the basic research and the, and the application where we need external funding in order to, to get past that. I could say, you know, I mean, a a broader question is our regulatory framework for clinical research Mm. in general, which is something that I've gotten quite concerned about. There's a good book by a guy named Robert Wertheim called Rethinking the Ethics of Clinical Research, you know, in which he's basically, this is a philosopher who hadn't been a bioethics guy. And then, you know, at the end of his career, he did a fellowship at the National Institutes of Health. Mm. And he wrote this book that's basically like, like, what the hell, guys? Why aren't you applying the normal ethical concepts of consent to these research things? Mm. Why is there this much higher standard in the bioethical world? Which he's not even saying, like, you should be the most crass version of a consequentialist you can imagine. That's like, maybe we can do secret experiments, but it's for the greater good. <laughs> but it's like, why can't you accept the normal standard of voluntary? That's like, mm. if you want to go... Right. Like if you want to get somebody to go work on a fishing boat, you got to pay them more than for other blue collar jobs because it's more dangerous. Mm. But if you want to do it for money, that's a perfectly legitimate career option. But that's not true for clinical studies. Right. And there's a lot separate from the funding side. I do think that we could be making faster progress on all the biomedical fronts if we've relaxed the standards for what constituted voluntary. Yeah. Should the U.S. do what it takes to develop a domestic semiconductor industry so it isn't so dependent on places like Taiwan or the PRC? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the expected value there is positive. I, I read this article in The Economist that was really dumping on the ideas of, of U.S. and EU semiconductor production. And they were like, it's going to lead to wasted money and overcapacity. But how, like, how bad is that? Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, say they're, say they're probably right. You know, like probably it's fine. Probably it's a waste of money. That doesn't sound so bad. Versus a kind of minor disruption to semiconductor production has been a big problem over the course of this pandemic. You could imagine that getting way worse. I mean, an actual shooting war between China and Taiwan is not that unlikely in mm-hmm. the scheme of things. And preparing for that in, in different ways seems easily worth doing. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that article might be slightly missing the point, which isn't that doing this is economically efficient in the median case. It's a risk, it's a variance reducing play, which is like expensive typically, but you're buying insurance against a a bad outcome. And I mean, this is a general, you know, I I like The Economist. I appreciate free markets. I sometimes scold progressives for not doing enough to appreciate free markets. But I think we know that financial markets do not adequately insure against low probability, high severity risks. Mm. Um, That's true of like truly existential risks, but also just of any kind of low probability events don't, you know, you can't get insurance against massive disruption of the semiconductor industry. Mm. So then there's no investment in the hedge against that. And we need governments to sort of reduce downside tail risk. It is worth some short-term efficiency loss to do that. Yeah. I mean, I actually think maybe the, the best argument against developing the ability to make these kinds of products locally is that the dependence of the US on China is actually really good because it reduces the risk of war that we should want the US to back down and we should like because it would be so bad for the two countries to go to war in fact it's perversely like good that the US can't stand on its own two feet but i mean that's a it's an interesting and slightly like counterintuitive <laughs> argument it's like a bit of a it's like a bit too clever by half sounding argument well, I mean, that was Norman Angel's argument, right, before World War One, is he said, well, we have so much economic interdependency that the costs of European great power conflict would be so high that it can't possibly happen because it would be totally irrational. Mm. I mean, it, it, that was correct. Uh, World <laughs> War One was very costly. Everybody ended up much worse off as a result of that, but it didn't mean it didn't happen. So yeah. I, I hesitate to put too many eggs in that basket. Yeah. Okay, let's partially move on and talk about existential risk-related policy issues specifically Mm -hmm. for a little bit. In a recent review of the film Don't Look Up, which is on on Netflix, you had this great bit that just made my eyes light up. And it was about major threats to humanity's survival. Yeah, if you'll forgive me, I think it's worth reading it for listeners because I just just love it so much. I don't want to tell you that there has never been a story in the mainstream press about supervolcanoes, but there really aren't very many. There's no mainstream constituency at all to fund a larger scientific effort to understand supervolcano risk and how to mitigate it. And a candidate for office who goes on Meet the Press to say one of his top priorities in Congress is improving US efforts to tackle supervolcanoes would be roundly mocked. I don't think this is because journalists are bad people who want us all to die in a spectacular accident. But we're a bunch of apes who have evolved to be very attuned to the machinations of high-status apes so that we can navigate the factual landscape effectively. The reporters and the editors and the producers they report to are apes, programming for an audience of apes. So you get a lot of stories about who is fighting whom and through what means. By contrast, on something like COVID-19's origins, we've had a decent amount of coverage of the lab leak controversy, but essentially no coverage at all of what is being done to prevent future lab leaks, that is, basically nothing, or to prevent future zoonotic crossover events, again, basically nothing. However COVID got started, we're not doing anything to counter either route for transmission, and that shocking, alarming, insane fact gets way less attention than the latest round of who's yelling at whom about masks. 
Okay, so so normally I dedicate a lot of the interview to kind of fleshing out exactly that issue about public rationality, except that we've already covered it a fair bit in 2021 with guests like Carl Schulman and Ezra Klein and, and Andrew Yang. So that might feel like a bit of a repeat for listeners. Uh, but that said, yeah, is there anything you wanted to add to or, or highlight from from that extract? No, I mean, you know, you, you've had a lot of people on the show talking about this. I mean, I think it's great that there's a community that is talking about this. And the only real question is how do we kind of carry that message forward to more people? And it's it's why I, I liked that movie, despite some of its problems as a climate analogy. Mm. Um, and I, I, you know, want to encourage more people to do pop culture about existential risks. I think that that's a meaningful way of increasing engagement. Okay, so yeah, in lieu of discussing why politicians don't make X risk part of their policy platform, which I guess people are, people probably probably do understand, yeah, I wanted to give you a chance to mention any specific things you think it might actually be worth doing about these various huge risks. And obviously, this is uh, super challenging, and I'm asking because often I don't have a clue. So, <laughs> so if you don't have any any ideas, uh, feel free to pass. Yeah, what what would you like to see governments do to stop the next pandemic kind of getting started at its source, whether that is from animals or from labs? Well, you know, so I, we talked a little bit about about vaccines and advanced market commitments. But, you know, I think that we should be trying at least to develop these kind of family-wide vaccines because mm. that can allow us to get ahead of viruses that literally don't exist right now mm. because we know something about the parameters in which they might kind of emerge. I, you know, we also do have to look at the not, the, not the lab leak per se, but I think the prevalence of gain-of-function research is very dangerous. And, and, you know, we should be pursuing efforts to sort of tamp down on doing that. There's also kind of, you know, mid-range stuff on surveillance and detection that could be useful. Uh, we had, um, you know, John Hickenlooper was talking in, in a Senate hearing recently about, you know, what would we need to do to scale up genomic surveillance, right? Basically, you know, look at the wastewater of different American cities and be kind of constantly scanning to see, is there anything new, you know, kind of popping up? in here. The technology to do that exists. It costs some money. I, it's the kind of thing where, you know, it would be wasteful on one level. You'd be running a lot of sequencing of people's poop and, you know, not finding anything in it. But, you know, it, it's good to put that infrastructure in place before you actually need to use it so it could be available in something of a timely manner. Yeah. I've only vaguely followed this story. Maybe you can correct my understanding here, but I've seen Dr. Fauci in front of various congressional, uh, you know, giving congressional testimony, kind of claiming that the US doesn't fund gain of function research. But it seemed to me like it's kind of a semantic game where he's claiming, based on some like very narrow technical scientific definition of exactly what is gain of function research and what isn't, that they aren't. But then, kind of just, a, a, in fact, like a popular, or like the thing that we're actually worried about is making viruses that could cause a massive pandemic. And they are doing that, even though it's like, or, or potentially they're funding research like that, even though it's not technically by their, by their definition called gain of function research. Is, is that your understanding? Yeah. I mean, there's both, there's definition splitting both on what does it mean to be funding something mm. and what does it mean for something to be gain of function research. But yeah, I mean, I think that there is a philosophy that trying to make more dangerous pathogens is very important way to develop defenses against the pathogens. Mm. There's always been this ambiguity in the um, biowarfare space between, you know, you're not allowed to try to develop offensive weaponry, but you are allowed to try to develop defenses. Mm. And so there's a strong, you know, military incentive to essentially smuggle offensive weapons development under the heading of what well, we need this for defense, mm. right? And I think that we should be, you know, looking at that 
telescope to the opposite end of the lens, really trying to clamp down on what we're doing there and then develop other ways of thinking about, you know, defensive research, right? Mm-hmm. That it's if you can develop technologies, defensive technologies that don't depend on you understanding the most small-grained details mm-hmm. of the virus's protein arrangement, then you don't have the excuse that, well, we need to be constantly fiddling with them in order to see if this stuff works. Yeah. I think it's interesting that in March 2020, People were really up in arms about this issue that, well, I mean, everyone was, uh, was, was assuming that COVID had come from a wet market, basically, in Wuhan, that it was because mm-hmm. of uh, people like having all of these live animals in a market and then people, people eating them, having close exposure. And people were kind of incensed by this, understandably, and talking about like, how could we get rid of it? It's just complete, as far as I know, nothing's been done and it's completely disappeared from the agenda. Like, how much, how much would we have to pay China to shut down the wet markets? How many billions of dollars would it cost? And like, wouldn't that be, wouldn't it be worth it? Well, and there's a very, you know, there's been this extreme literalism of this debate where it's like when people felt sure that it had come from a poorly supervised wet market, who were like really fired up about shutting them down. But the reason they thought it came from a poorly supervised wet market is that ex ante, that seemed very risky. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now subsequent analysis has maybe cast doubt on the idea that it actually did come that way. But the whole premise that that's a risky thing to be doing, like that's still true, right? But so now the Chinese in a blame-shifting exercise like have some frozen food theory. And I mean, I think that that's wrong from, you know, what I've talked to people with technical capabilities. But as forward-looking question, like that doesn't matter, right? Clearly having a very wide array of live animals in very close proximity to each other and close proximity to urban areas with creatures being brought in from all different parts of the world, like that is dangerous, right? That is a biologically dangerous. It's not that high value to China either. I mean, there are things that it's hard to get cooperation on because they're so important. But the Chinese government has fitfully tried to marginalize these things over the years for, you know, different reasons. And then it's culturally sensitive issues. So they get pushback, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it it's frustrating that you can't get a real move there. Yeah. I was just thinking, like, what could actually be done? I mean, I wonder, um, could the US just say, look, give us a list of everyone who works in every wet market in China. And if they shut down their thing and don't open up a new one, we'll give them all, the, each one of them a million dollars. It seems like it would be an absolute bargain. But oh, I don't know, maybe a million is, is too much. At that, yeah, at that price, it wouldn't be worth it. But what about $100,000? Would they be willing to go get a different job for that? But it's just Right, the, I mean, exactly. Yeah, I guess this is the kind of thing that economists think is very sensible. But then you just know in your gut that this could never happen for some reason. I mean, unfortunately, it's not a super cooperative, you know, environment between the U.S. and China Mm. right now. And everyone, you know, I I mean, this is, again, one of these things that's understandable, but unfortunate that there is a lot of psychology about not looking weak happening in, in different places. And so the question of who is making a concession to whom, you know, feels very kind of significant to everyone. And that makes it hard to you know, take any kind of concrete action, even though really the stakes here are not that high and people's interests seem fairly aligned, right? Mm. I mean, I do think that the most likely way to get Chinese wet markets uh, sort of cracked down on is for the Chinese to do it on their own yeah. unilaterally, not under pressure from the United States, just because 
they decide they would like to. Mm. And for them to look like they were backing down is not something they would want to do. And for Western countries to seem like they were bribing China is not something we would want to do. So, you know, I mean, I hope Xi Jinping uh, listens to your show and, you know, (laughs) is just going to do the right thing here. (laughs) Yeah, it it is interesting that perversely neglecting and not talking about this issue might be the best way to, (laughs) to, to solve the problem. I mean, you never know, right? As a person who likes to talk about things, mm. I would always like it to be the case that shining more attention on a topic is the solution. The solution yeah. um, and it is for some problems, but unfortunately not for everything. Yeah. What, if anything, would you like to see the government do about comets and or supervolcanoes? So NASA poked around on the supervolcano issue a few years ago, and they seemed to have the idea that you could try to cool down the magma underneath Yellowstone with essentially injecting water, it comes back. That's related to sort of the idea of advanced geothermal as an electricity generating Mm. concept. So there are these regulatory sensitivities around geothermal drilling on federal lands, a ton of sensitivity about doing it in an actual national park, Mm. uh, which is where Yellowstone is. But I think that saying that sacrificing a portion of the park in order to not have literally the entire planet explode um, would probably be a win-win and we could offset that with some more parkland someplace else. Um, Again, as you would expect, it's not totally clear that that would work, but it's it's worth investing, you know, some money in the exploration of whether or not it works. Uh, There's a few other supervolcanoes that are out there. The comments is, I understand it, after, you know, Deep Impact and Armageddon came out, we actually got the government to track asteroids better. And comets are just a little bit harder to track. They come in at a sharper angle mm. and they go further away. But, you know, we should put some more telescopes up yeah. there and try try to find them. I mean, I guess, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia for the kind of heroic age of NASA and, and space exploration, which was very motivated in its heyday as a kind of national defense imperative against the Soviet Union. Today, I don't think that you can very plausibly claim that, you know, we need to go to Mars to to stick it to China. Um, but there's a very clear national defense rationale for, you know, comprehensively tracking objects in outer space as far away as we can. Um, the amount of money that's spent on defense programs is very, very, very large. And, you know, tracking those comets is good, especially as we have more private sector interest in some of the sort of sexy low-hanging fruit of like let's put some human beings and have them go around the earth in a circle Mm. um you know i mean good for the entrepreneurs and um there's there's not a huge roi and you know financially in in tracking comets but socially it's very valuable yeah i mean i guess uh just a few weeks ago we saw the james webb telescope go up and obviously it has like an unbelievable sensitivity unbelievable ability to detect objects that are that are extremely far away in this case billions of uh, light years away so i imagine i mean i don't understand the technology but i figure there there must be some way to turn money into the ability to see comments that are further away than what we currently do if we if we really set our mind to it yeah i mean i think that this is a, just a question of how much of the field of view you know are we actually looking at at any mm. given time you need you need more than one telescope and they're expensive yeah Yeah, any ideas for how to reduce the risk of a war with nuclear weapons or, I guess, reduce the number of weapons that are used if if one does occur? 
Not really. <laughs> okay. I mean, we got, just, we just got to, to do our best. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people should be mindful of, I think we're probably going to talk about my sometimes unpopular opinions about Russia um, mm. out there. But, you know, kind of ask yourself with any kind of international conflict, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? Mm. And conflict between the U.S. and, and Russia is is very dangerous. And it's worth asking yourself what, the stakes really are and what the upside to some of these things is. U.S. and China is the more kind of hot geopolitical topic. China does not have that many nuclear weapons right now. We should be keeping in mind, you know, how can we keep it that way? And, you know, anytime the U.S. and Russia can agree to reduce our nuclear stockpiles, that has a safety benefit in terms of that bilateral relationship, Mm. but also in terms of reassuring the Chinese that they do not need to embark on a crash program to drastically increase the number of nuclear weapons they have. Theoretically, the major nuclear powers committed to disarmament, you know, some time ago. Um, They're not actually doing that. But anything that's done that sort of counts as baby steps in that direction is useful. Do you think we should do anything more now to prepare, you know, domestic society or the international order for the possibility of major advances in AI over the coming decades? I mean, we definitely should. The question, but what, you know, maybe is that? the question is always what, right? I mean, this, this has been, you know, as a as a the person who asks the questions on podcasts, I've had a couple of things where I've had, you know, people from the effective altruism and, and long termist world on the show, or just talk to them informally to be like, what, like, what should I do, hmm. right? Say, say I decide that I take AI risk extremely seriously. Like, what do you want me to say about this? And their answers always strike me as fairly fuzzy. So I'm left at a bit of a of an impasse, right? Now, again, you know, to to the young people out there, if you are technically literate and you're, you know, in your early 20s or late teens and wondering what to do with your life, there is a a lot of demand for good ideas about, you know, incentive compatible artificial intelligence, how to make this maximally beneficial rather than threatening to humanity. On a policy level, I'm 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 in the market, you know, for, for good hot takes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that, that there are policy ideas coming up through the through the academic conversation, but it does still feel like the conversation is like pretty pretty preliminary. And they're also they seem very fairly reluctant to go out and publicly advocate for anything in, in particular, which is interesting. I suppose they they're just worried that their ideas could do more harm than good a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean that's definitely a, a risk that's out there. And you know, I mean, I worry sometimes about you know, you have communities, you have like schools of thought, and that's good. But sometimes, you know, something can become just like a like a scene, right? So it's like to be to be in and part of the tribe. You'd be like, oh, I'm really worried about AI existential <laughs> risk, and it's like okay, but like what? It's like just like quote unquote being worried about things doesn't accomplish anything in Mm. life. And, you know, you can just kind of dismiss other problems, say like, Mm. well, don't worry about that. Like worry about the AI risk. But like, is there a trade-off, right? Is there something that a typical person, a typical elected official even should be doing differently? I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not saying no, but Mm. I haven't been super convinced in the way that say I have on pandemics or even super volcanoes, you know, like there are these kind of fiscal trade-offs in the NASA budget in NIH, what, what they care about that really address existential risk on those topics. 
Yeah, I mean, 80,000 hours to some extent exists to try to solve solve this problem. I, I guess we have good ideas, as, as you were suggesting, for like what should you do if you're early in your career or you're willing to like fully change your career to go and become like, mm-hmm. a, you know, a domain expert in a particular policy issue or some particular technical problem. But it has been a lot harder to come up with, you know, you're a 40-year-old generalist who has a lot of Twitter followers. What should you do? <laughs> That's like, we, right. we, haven't, we, haven't quite, we haven't quite nailed that one yet. <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. I'm pretty yeah. useless. I don't know. What would you like to see governments do about the threat that surveillance systems or technologies could be abused for, uh, you know, oppressive or authoritarian purposes in future? I guess, uh, including in countries where it's not not obvious that they definitely will be used that way. Yeah, I mean, is that is that the future or is that the present? Mm. I'm not really sure. Um, you know, I mean, what should governments do about it? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I tend to think that we sometimes in the United States, at least over-index on let's not use this technology for good because in principle it could be used for evil. I see what people are saying about that. And so I I think in the UK, right, you have a lot of CCTV cameras uh, around everywhere and the police can use that footage to try to catch murderers. And that's very stigmatized in the United States because it's seen as a privacy risk and, you know, an oppressive government could use that technology to do really bad things. I never find that all that persuasive. I mean, if the oppressive government takes over in the future, I don't think it'll be that hard for them to install the cameras, cameras, right? So I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to say it's an overrated problem because it's obviously quite serious problem. I think the PRC has developed a level of oppressiveness that is beyond the capabilities of 20th century states. Mm. And they themselves, I mean, we know 20th century totalitarianism was worse than the worst governments of, you know, the 16th century Mm. because they had more capacity, right? And so it's a big issue. But I don't know that having liberal states refuse to develop state capacity is a good answer to that. In some levels, I mean, we need to be as capable as we can, right? I mean, we want to show that liberal states can succeed and can deliver good governance in an effective way and not just kind of lose out. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can see what you're saying about not deploying the cameras doesn't super help because a malicious government can just buy some cameras and stick them up. But I mean, it seems like it's worth imagining, you know, in a dec- like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years time, imagine that the US government, the executive was trying to use the kind of things that we imagine they're going to have to oppress and suppress their political political enemies. Like what other things that we could do to make that more difficult, like legally potentially to, to slow this down, mm-hmm. you'd have to like wait for the judges to die and be replaced in order to be able to get something through. Or like you'd have to, if you don't control Congress, then Congress has passed these laws in the past, like making it very difficult to do X, X Y, and Z in order to buy time. That, that potentially seems seems worth doing. Yes. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm for civil liberties, like, you know, normal people have and do. I just, you know, Americans are very invested in the idea that a certain kind of proceduralism is safeguarding our Mm. liberties. And I just think that if you look cross-sectionally, right, at um, the UK, at Canada, at Ireland, at Australia, at New Zealand, I don't actually find that very compelling, right, that Mm. all the countries that have this kind of Anglophone cultural heritage have, you know, sort of similar social values, sort of similar outcomes. We actually have wildly different baseline political institutions. Mm. Um, You know, the U.S. and Britain diverged incredibly sharply in the late 18th century in our concept of like what to do about the king oppressing you, right? In which Britain went like 
all in on parliament, right? Mm. We should democratize the parliamentary elections. We should empower the House of Commons. And you now have this this hyper-sovereign unicameral legislature. We went like the other way, right? That we're like, we're all in on counterbalance theory. And, mm. you know, the, our, our version of the House of Lords is super important. We have all this federalism, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that that stuff has given us like any more practical liberties or like real safeguard against tyranny in a mm. in a practical level yeah i mean well, maybe the case is clearer in the uk i guess you're, you're kind of saying that our protection is actually the values of people in the society that yeah you know an individual person who wants to abuse technology this way won't be able to because people will stop them <laughs> because they don't like it and that, that makes a lot of sense but uh like what would you want to do if you wanted to add more safeguards in, in the uk it seems like Parliament does just have a lot of authority to do pretty crazy stuff if you could get a majority uh, to to go with it. And, and I, you know, I might feel happier if there were <laughs> if there were more safeguards to stop Parliament really going off the rails. I mean, I think Parliament probably won't go off the rails just because of the culture of the UK and of the UK political class, as you say. But uh, yeah, I don't know that I want to bank bank everything on that. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, let's move on and talk about how you approach using polling and other indications of what voters think to kind of shape the ideas that, that you advocate for. Yeah, this is another topic where, where a few of my followers thought that you uh, you had the wrong idea, or at least the, the wrong idea in, in specific cases. So first off, yeah, when you're researching a problem like, you know, climate emissions or, uh, you know, childhood poverty in the US, how do you personally use indications of public opinion? Oh, yeah. You know, this is one of these things where you wind up sometimes in life getting backed into lines of work that you didn't expect mm. you would be you would be in and I should maybe I don't know reevaluate but something that I have found is that the world of public opinion research is kind of bifurcated or trifurcated if that's a word <laughs> on the one hand you know you have people doing polls to go to the media right for sort of public consumption then you have people doing polls to issue advocates who like want polls that say their positions are popular. And then you have people doing polls because they're trying to win campaigns. And survey methods are the same across these things, but what your incentives are and what you actually care about are pretty different. So I think that unfortunately for the mass public, to get a good read on public opinion, like like a rigorous look at how things are without putting a lot of English on it with, with question wording, you do have to talk to the people who are doing private work for political campaigns, mm. because they are the ones who have the strongest incentive to get the question right. Not in terms of the survey sample, but in terms of the what questions you ask people. So, I mean, I know there, there's a couple guys on Twitter who are very angry that I say carbon taxes are unpopular. Yeah, that was one of the one of the people who put this uh, put this on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and they've got their polls that say it's popular, but. So we know in America that when this has been put to ballot initiative in Washington state, it's lost badly twice, Hmm. right? We also know that in Europe, where the macro politics is greener than in the United States, Hmm. the European elected officials act as if stiff carbon pricing is going to be very unpopular, Hmm. right? In what way? They don't talk about it? I mean, and and they don't do it. Okay. Right. I mean, you isn't, know, isn't they, that the they EU uh, carbon market is like the, the price of a ton of carbon isn't like that low now, right? It's pretty low. I mean, they, 
And they do all this other kind of green stuff, right? And there's opposition parties aren't, you know, winning elections on the basis of of huge things. Um, In Australia, when the government tried to put a carbon tax in place, there was a big backlash to it. You know, then so people say if you do the best kind of issue surveys where you do a partisan frame, so you say some Democrats are proposing a blah, blah, blah price on carbon, which they say will reduce climate change in the most cost-effective way possible. Republicans say it'll raise the price of gas by, and then you give them like a, a real number, not like a crazy lie. It'll raise the price of gas by so much sense, raise the price of electricity by so much. It becomes incredibly unpopular in that framework, like Mm -hmm. less popular than commercial legalization of heroin. And, you know, you see, right, when the price of gasoline spiked in the United States a few months ago, it was a huge deal politically. Mm -hmm. People were losing their shit about it. Probably the best media poll on this is Reuters did a survey where they asked people, should we take drastic action to stop climate change? And Mm -hmm. most people said yes. Then they asked, would you be willing to pay $100 a year more in taxes to stop Mm. climate change? People said no. Mm. Um, $100 a year is not that drastic, you know? I mean, I spend $100 a year on things that I don't think are important at all. I mean, it's it's 0.2% of the uh, average household income or something like that. Right. I mean, I don't want to say it's nothing, but Mm. it's, you know, I mean, I've given $100 to charitable causes that I don't even think are very good causes, just because, you know, somebody somebody asked me to and I had a relationship with them. So I think that it's tough. I mean, as a professional journalist, this is the, the kind of thing that I can do is ask people to tell me things that they cannot say in public. And then I can try to triangulate the things that they have told me against publicly available information, like this Reuters thing like the Washington polls, like the fact that practical politicians don't campaign heavily on green tax shifts and try to make people sort of see the truth. But it's hard. I mean, I never know because I'm not like a huge like scoops guy. And, you know, if you want to believe that I'm like lying to you or that my sources are lying to me, it's challenging to prove otherwise. I see. So so the issue is that you're getting what you think are the most reliable indications of public opinion. And I guess also where public opinion would go if this became a live political issue from people who are working on campaigns and that, that the polling data is private or the, or the research is private and so you can't, can't share it. And so sometimes it conflicts with perhaps advocacy polls that have been put out or at least or perhaps less high quality you know, public polling from Gallup where maybe the question's not quite right or they, or they haven't really tried to suss out to stress test like how long people, like for how long would people really believe this if it started costing money? Wait, I mean, it's it's the stress testing in particular, you know, that's important. There's a phenomenon that's called acquiescence bias, mm. where if you ask people questions, they are inclined to say yes. And so researchers used to think that this had something to do with talking to people on the phone. And they were very bullish when internet polling first started, and they thought they were going to get rid of this, but they didn't. Which seems a little odd. I mean, because you could imagine it being like, well, you know, you don't want to like fight with the guy on the phone. You, you want to agree. But it it's quite common. And unless you give people sort of argument, counter argument, you can show that like all kinds of things are popular and contradictory things. I mean, this mm. is not, not breaking new ground. Um, this is Converse's classic work on, on public opinion. But like people don't have 
really deep and consistent views, which sometimes gets taken to mean, well, you could get away with anything in politics. But like, that's also not true. I mean, there's very consistent patterns of public backlash and resistance to things that raise middle-class people's taxes, in particular to high salience taxes, Mm. to increases in the cost of energy. And you see that not just in the U.S., but, you know, really around the the world. And I think a very underrated thing for American, American progressives looking at politics is that we'll look across the ocean and say, oh, these Europeans, like they have these great healthcare systems and why can't we have one like that? And the answer in a lot of cases is that the healthcare systems were created decades ago when the cost of providing them was much, much lower. Mm. And so it was done with small taxes. And once it exists, people become very attached to it, right? And if the quality of the healthcare service is degraded, they are, in fact, willing to put more funds into it for Mm. the sake of better services. But because we didn't adopt a universal healthcare system when Truman was president or when JFK was president, we are now stuck with the present-day cost structure. And it's just a much heavier lift to get people to embrace it. But nobody, the the 2022 cost of the National Health Service was not presented to the British public in 1948. They got the 1940s cost. And, you know, it's good good for Clement Attlee. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got like a couple of uncertainties about, about how this works in practice. I think like one objection would be to say, Look, you've got like these different categories of polling. It's like you read any individual poll, it's really hard mm-hmm. to tell like what was the motivation of the person who originated it. Is the question quite right? Like what other follow-up questions were there? It's like, could a different group have said a different thing? And you're having to refer to these private conversations with people who won't talk to most other folks and then like they might disagree as well. It just seems like this is a real mess to analyze and it's and that's demonstrated by the fact that you know, different people who kind of pro- have similar policy preferences ultimately like actually disagree about what they think the the public might might favor if, if push came to shove. And so maybe this enterprise is a bit doomed and instead we should just be like advocating for what we think is substantively best because at least we can Yeah, do I mean, that. I do think it's a question of, you know, who we are. I have stumbled, I would say, a little bit like ass backwards into being a guy who writes a lot about polls and public opinion surveys. And it was not my Mm. intention exactly. I mean, I don't know that it's super important for the typical person to be deeply, deeply invested in this. Uh, The main thing that I would like the person on the street to take away from it is that workaday politicians running for office are probably better informed about the state of public opinion than you are. And that if you are finding yourself baffled as to why someone won't say something or embrace something that you think they should, that it's probably because their surveys indicate that it's not that popular and maybe try to be a little less mad. Now, like, what should you advocate for? I mean, whether it's you or or, or the listener or whoever else, like, you probably should advocate for the right thing to do. And you should probably advocate for the right thing to do as if you were trying to be persuasive, which I think people oftentimes Mm. don't do on the internet. You know, (laughs) what what a lot of people do, I would say, uh, people who, heavy consumers of political punditry, I would say spend a lot of time pounding the table on behalf of what they think is the right thing to do, being very impatient that other people in positions of greater responsibility aren't saying exactly what they want them to say and searching for bias-confirming information that indicates that they are right about everything. Now, I don't think any, like, 80,000 hours people are actually in that headspace. 
Oh, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm in that headspace. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, we, we were pounding the table earlier about the Chinese I mean, I, wet I mean, I, Everybody <laughs> is sometimes, but I mean, yeah. you know, I just like... Yeah. I, I, we're not the worst I, I don't think it's like huge breaking news out here to be to tell mm. people who've listened to your show that like a, people spend a lot of time on kind of pseudo arguments and confirmation bias. Yeah. Um, I, I try to be more of a rationalist than the average political pundit, more of an effective altruist than the average political pundit. But I really am a political pundit whose life is mostly responding to other people in the punditry space. And there are a lot of bad arguments, wrong ideas, fallacious information going around on these subjects. And, you know, I've gotten into some some pushing back on it, some level of audience interest in these kind of ideas. But most of all, like, I mean, something that absolutely is just relevant to your main topics here is that, like, there are lots of ways of making political change that do not involve leaders of political parties pronouncing the right thing in the heat of a political campaign in a high-profile media way, mm. right? I mean, that that is a thing that happens in politics, right? Like, people are like, our campaign is going to be waged on X, Y, and Z, and we're going to, like, elevate that to the top of the discourse. It's an important part of life. It's an important part of policy change. But it's absolutely not the only way that policy changes. And I think it's only a good way to change policy when you are really, really convinced that public opinion is behind you. Uh, we were talking before, I mean, I, I wish the government would do something about supervolcanoes. I think it would be crazy for Joe Biden to give like a State of the <laughs> Union address where he's like, my fellow Americans, there's a one in 10,000 chance that a large magma <laughs> deposit under Yellowstone, right? Like he would, people would think that was bizarre and he shouldn't do it. I'm not sure whether that would help or hurt it. Just, I, I have no idea I mean, what I don't know either. I, I'll put it this way. Yeah. If, if, if the pros tell me, they're like, Matt, we did you a favor. We looked at that and it sucks. Like, don't, <laughs> I think that's fine. Like what, what I am asking them to do is see if they can't have a conversation staffer to staffer in the Interior Department Appropriations where they like get some money mm. to say like, does this Yellowstone cooling idea, like does that work? And like, you want to find bipartisan cover. Like you want a Republican, ideally one who represents Wyoming to be like, yes, like the, I think yeah, Yellowstone right. is in Wyoming. Apologies if it's someplace else. <laughs> uh, but like, it's, it's a big problem, you know, and someone should do something about it, which does not mean it should be the centerpiece of a national political campaign. Yeah. I guess just another general concern I have in this area is that the idea that like just a random person who you might phone up has opinions about the child tax credit or all of these other mm -hmm. policy issues that someone somewhere cares about and wants to know what people think. Like they have no opinion on some, like just as I have no opinion on the great majority of topics because I've never thought about them and I don't and I don't really care about them. And one of the reasons why it's so hard to suss out what people think is that sometimes they just don't think anything about it. And so we don't know and until I guess it becomes a partisan conversation and we see how people react to news stories and so on. But maybe the whole thing of like, what is public opinion about X or Y is kind of malformed mm -hmm. in, a, in a sense. And, and it's super unstable. And like, there is no real answer. I mean, I think that there's a level on which that's true and a level on which it's not true. So, you know, I mean, one thing you can you can see is that we have referendums and initiatives pretty frequently in the United States. Hmm. And so you can relate, you know, how do those referendum outcomes look compared to early polling on the thing? And academics who study this show say that it tends to like fall back to baseline, right? That like really popular 
referendums underperform and really unpopular ones overperform. So the argument, you know, kind of pushes people a little bit back toward the center, but only modestly so. But that's if you do a good survey that proposes that there will be an argument and like says that there are two sides to the issue. So it's both true that most people have not really given most thought to most issues, but their kind of gut reaction to a pro and con argument is pretty predictive about where they're going to be at the end of the day, precisely because they're not deep reflectors on it, right? Now, what would be harder to say is what would people think about this subject if they studied it intensively for months? But they're not going to study Mm. it intensively for months. What they're going to see is some pro and con ads on television occasionally that they do not engage with very deeply. Just as, you know, I mean, you, I'm sure there's lots of things you don't have an opinion on, but, you know, somebody who knows you well, I think, can develop a pretty good <laughs> mental model of you. Or they don't even need to know you that well to be like, okay, you know, this is a long-termist, this is an effective altruist, this is a cosmopolitan. So, like, how is he going to come out on this question that, like, I am factually well-informed about once he becomes better mm. informed? Because, you know, we can... We can make these kinds of predictions. You know, you asked me at the top of this what my opinion was on a bunch of stuff that you didn't know what my view was. But I I doubt I really shocked you (laughs) on any of those answers, right? Because you have some information about the general argumentative landscape. I I mean, you're a somewhat unusual person, though. You're like a somewhat unusual person in that you think about these things all the time. So you have like a more structured framework on Mm -hmm. how you approach these questions. Whereas like many people, it's like their interests are primarily not like, it is not primarily public policy. And so they're perhaps more likely to form somewhat random opinions based on what they heard. Well, but see, but I think, but I think what you see people default to is selfishness and short-term thinking, right? And that that's the sort of core underlying constraint of public opinion in a democracy, right? And so a very valuable thing we can do in the world is push people culturally, personally, to be more broad-minded and less short-sighted in their kind of thinking. But, Mm. you know, this is why climate change is a difficult problem, because you are asking people to, you know, make sacrifices for the long-term benefit largely of foreigners, So it's not that hard to convince people that greenhouse gases are real or that it would be desirable to, like, have climate change not happen. But it's very hard to push people to make changes in their personal lives or to embrace policies that would force them to change. But if you can obscure the costs or do things that, you know, seem like win-wins, like, well, we're just you know, we're going to develop carbon capture technology. We're like, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, sounds good. Um, Let's go do that. And it's exactly why it's so much easier to get me to agree that factory farmed meat is a moral problem than to get me to stop eating it. Because I don't know, like I'm a bad person, you know, like I I, I try to be better. I I eat less than I used to. And I espouse Mm. a lot of correct positions. I like to think that I could bring myself through to like vote yes on a ballot referendum that would make this more costly for me that I I am I am at that level of reflectiveness, but we are mm. we are weak pitiful creatures. Yeah. I think so this is reminding me cuz I have this kind of cached belief 
that middle class people don't want to hear about how good it, how good it is to raise prices on goods that they buy all the time. They don't really want to hear about how they're going to have to pay more taxes. Just for the same reason, though, all of us don't want to have our income yeah. lowered. We lowered. We don't we don't like to take a pay cut. We don't like to take a tax increase. But I've also heard this other line of research that the kind of selfish voter hypothesis is kind of wrong because voters very often take positions that are like largely expressive mm-hmm. about like communicating their values because like their views and like how they vote makes very little difference to the actual outcome. So if you enjoy saying it would be good for taxes to be higher, then that can massively outweigh the downside of the tiny possibility that you saying that could actually cause taxes on you to be increased. And so you can get people to take in politics or in voting like very idealistic positions that maybe if they were actually implemented, they would be quite pissed off, but they are like willing to say and willing to express views that would be very costly to them in, 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 in some sense. Yeah. Have you read that literature? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always interesting how much things tend to flip when it becomes more concrete, you know, in in a lot of ways that like, yes, like you can get, you know, the um, evolution of political polarization in most Western countries has come to be that educated people are on the left politically, even though oftentimes they're reasonably affluent you know, which is contrary to how politics has traditionally been organized. And so they will espouse lots of tax increasing ideas that are not necessarily, you know, in the interests of urban, young, cosmopolitan, professional minded people. And yet it has been challenging to actually get those kinds of increases enacted. Um, One of the ways that the Democratic Party in the U.S. has evolved over the years is that, you know, Barack Obama promised to raise taxes only on people earning over $250,000 a year. Then to get a measure through Congress, he had to raise that ceiling to $450,000 a year. Joe Biden took over the $450,000 baseline, but he has struggled to achieve even that and is looking now at a very, very, very narrow kind of, of tax base. And I do think that that's because the influx of more affluent people into the Democratic Party has made it more challenging to actually raise taxes, even though there is a lot of support for kind of symbolic egalitarianism And, you know, in some ways more support than ever for like being mean to billionaires and things like that. And I'm trying to think of some some other examples that you you have of this. You know, it's common to meet people who are very worried about the environment and sustainability. Mm -hmm. But then if you tell them that gas stoves are bad, this is common in America, at least to have gas stoves, they'll like freak out. You know, I feel like that, like, like that's terrible because it's so concrete because people here are not used to the high quality electric induction stoves and the old fashioned mm. electric coil okay. stoves. But of course they work and you can cook food. They're not as good. And like, it's a big yuppie lifestyle mm. signifier to have a gas stove. It shows that like you've like made it. And when you like actually propose taking it away from people, they get very leery. Uh, so New York just made a rule that new construction is not going to be allowed to have the gas hookups. But they made sure that if you have existing construction, it's not only that you don't have to give up your gas stove, but you'll be able to replace it like with another <laughs> gas stove, right? So they're, yeah. they're trying to thread the needle there, right? To be like, they're, they're in, people want to take action. And they came up with a way so that the action will not accrue to the people who are actually voting right now. And you know, politics is tough in that respect. Yeah. 
Yeah, the gas stove one is interesting because it's not only a like global environmental concern, it's also a health concern for the people in the house. It tends to cause a bit of respiratory problems for people to have gas stoves. So not, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not so large that, that people tend to notice, but folks who have studied this have realized that it's like, yeah, just bad for people's health. And that may be the future, right? Is making it turn, because you could mm. flip the script on that from like, this is classy to like, you are indifferent to the lives of your it's children. like smoking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think some of what's going on here is that I suspect that quite a lot of your reading of polling and and mine as well, like how we interpret it is very colored by like priors that we have about what things people are likely to support and what things they probably won't. So when someone comes to me with polling saying that like, oh, actually like a great majority of people support a carbon tax, I'm like, no (laughs) way, (laughs) no way. Because I mean, I, I grew up in the debates about the carbon tax in Australia uh, you know, I, I was in favor of it, but it's like I could just see that the attack ads were really successful. People did not want to have their gas yes. prices go up. And so I had this like very strong prior that it's going to be really hard in a real political campaign to get most people to vote in favor of a carbon tax that is going to like substantially raise costs for them. But anyway, maybe I could be wrong about that. But I have all of these like perceptions about what can get through the political process and and what can't. And I suppose people who have like different priors about that could look at the same polling and come away with quite a different conclusion than than what you or I might, because there's just so, so many polls to choose from. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that's true. The other thing I will say is this is something where I have seen a rapid evolution of conventional wisdom to positions that I think are wrong. That like 15 years ago, you know, if just like everybody knew that raising the gas tax was unpopular... <laughs> Um, but also that it might be a good thing to do. And I could just like say that in a story and people like, yeah, no, like that's fine. Certain like very specific progressive advocacy groups invested a fair amount of money in trying to convince people that their entire Democratic Party policy agenda is super popular. Mm. And it took like real work to like dislodge people from longstanding conventional wisdom and I think the older conventional wisdom is just because like one group of people gets impatient with me because they're like, you're being wrong, blah, blah, blah. There's mm. another group of people who gets impatient with me because like, wait, everybody knows this. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I'm much more on the side of everybody knows this. You know, so I, I think that there was a fairly recent U.S. specific kind of effort to create a bit of conventional wisdom that the American electorate really yearns for transformation into a European-style welfare state, and that that is not true, and that most people have mostly been aware that it's not true and are sort of coming back Mm. to reality. I kind of hope to not spend the rest of my life (laughs) writing and thinking about this subject, because I actually think it's like not that interesting. Um, You can see if you do surveys on very abstract values about individualism, authority, religion, etc., that American public opinion is just somewhat to the right of European public opinion. Americans are more individualistic, they're more religious, they're more hierarchical. Not like wildly so, there's plenty of overlap, mm. but but discernibly. And I think that's what people have mostly thought from history. I mean, if you, maybe this is too wildly speculative, but like, I think there was like a self-selection of more individualism-minded people to emigrate, you know, into the colonies and all of the, you know, settler states had lower taxes and stuff than the continent. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. 
I do sometimes say uh, to Europeans, like, it's not surprising that Americans are more skeptical about government programs because their government seems worse at delivering programs, <laughs> which might, uh, and then sometimes people respond, it's like, yeah, well, that's a deliberate scheme by people who don't want the government to be doing more things, is to make it bad at doing things. So I mean, there's definitely something to it's that. Like some, right? some truth to that, yeah. Some, and that's, that's an area that, like, I find much more rewarding to think mm-hmm. about and focus on is like, how can we improve uh, yeah. programs and make people like them better and, you know, do something useful in life? Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know the, this group that's been trying to persuade people that the progressive policy agenda was super popular all along. But I imagine, I mean, some of them, like many of them probably do sincerely believe that. And and I guess they would probably respond that they've been doing this polling to show that depending on how you frame things, or if you ask the question the right way, if you like present these policies with the benefits in mind, then it's like easier to persuade people to support them than than you might have thought. And so there's a lot of like latent potential support that this uh, that this polling is is bringing up. Yes. I mean, I think the the best version of the argument, though, is almost sort of the opposite. It's that when you put things in place, they tend to be fairly durable. So th- there's something to be said for like, you know, a YOLO attitude to this kind of thing. Um, mm. You know, Barack Obama's health care plan was not very popular when Congress enacted it. There was a significant backlash to it in 2010. But then when there was an effort to remove it, there was a backlash to that, right? So there's a, there's a tension, you know, in U.S. politics right now between that line of thinking, you know, Biden and the Democrats should get done what they can while they can, mm. and who cares what happens next, and this kind of an authoritarian Republican party is poised to extinguish democracy kind of rhetoric. And I think that a lot of people on the left have an unresolved tension Tension. (laughs) in, in their views of what they're saying. Because in both cases, right, saying, okay, the opposition is really, really evil. That's like a leftist stance, Mm. but saying, well, we need to be incredibly bold with what we do. Like that's a leftist stance too. And then you could square the circle by saying, well, being really, really bold is going to be overwhelmingly popular. And so that's very attractive, right? It just like it it Mm. relieves dissonance. And I think as is the case with a lot of attractive dissonance reducing beliefs, it's not very well supported empirically. And there's a tough, judgment call to be made about how risky do you really want policymakers to be with what they are i mean i was a i was a kid when bill clinton was president but i was i mean it was a teenager so i, I was aware of what happened i've always been interested in politics and mm. he was super duper popular and he also didn't have that much in the way of great achievements and it seemed to me at the time that that was pretty you know, disappointing way to live your life and, you know, way to be doing politics. But it's it's hard to argue with the results, right? Like people, people really love that. Yeah. Uh, that's a style of politics that's pretty attractive. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about some general preconceptions that we have or like beliefs that we have about what kind of policies are popular and which ones aren't. So, so one is like people don't like to pay more money, if that's like mm-hmm. really salient. I guess another one is just like the status quo is like there's a certain fraction of people who just like don't like changing stuff. Yeah, are there any other like design principles that you might want to always keep in mind when when designing a policy about what kinds of things end up being popular and not popular? I mean, I I do think that the it was not just the status quo, right? But it's it's risk aversion. Hmm. You know, people dwell on on the downside and and, and loss. But they're not very, I shouldn't say risk aversion. It's loss aversion, right? People are more worried about losing what they have than about gaining something that they don't currently have. And so Mm. it's hard for people on the left 
to persuade people that some new program is going to be amazing and it's going to be worth paying the taxes. But it's also hard for people on the right to win arguments that are like, well, without this program, we can cut taxes and that's going to create better incentives to save and invest. And that's going to increase growth by 0.002%. And when you compound that out for X number of years, people get a lot of like, eh, I don't know about that. People are also just not great at thinking about the long term. You know, I mean, if you ask anyone, you know, somebody who's 40 and you'll be like, well, do you care about what's going to happen to you when you're 70? They'd be like, of course, I'm not, I'm not like a crazy person, right? Now you ask them, do I care what's going to happen hundreds of generations in the future? They might say, no, we might say, okay, you, you discount more than you should. But even when they say that they're not discounting the future of their own life, I think they just pretty clearly are when they're making policy decisions. You know, people do not are not in the habit of really thinking about their their long-term interests. And we see that in all kinds of behaviors, right? I mean, it's why mm. there's people who smoke. It's why lots of people struggle with, with all kinds of personal health sorts of issues. And in their in their political thinking, you know, it it's even worse, right? To really mm. get people to think, you know, how how's this going to play out? It's tough. tough. Yeah, yeah. I guess what about people talk a lot about means testing making mm-hmm. policies more or less popular. Uh, so for people overseas, means testing, I think, is the term for like, do you allow everyone to access a program or only people who are below some income threshold? Yeah. So people argue about this a lot. I actually think if you pay attention to what everyone's saying, they are not in that much of a tension, really. So mm. if a program exists and everybody is using it, that makes it much, much harder to get rid of right, versus a a very narrow type of program. So there is a political durability benefit to some kind of universalistic designs. At the same time, the broader you make the program, the more tax revenue you need to get. And so typically, you know, if we do comparative welfare state design, typically the really big welfare states have a broad tax base. They use a lot of Mm. payroll tax, they use a lot of value-added tax. And those taxes tend to be unpopular, so it's harder to create a really broad universal program, but also harder to get rid of a really broad universal program. So, mm-hmm. you know, what should you actually do? Like, what should you try to do? I mean, that's a, I, I don't know that there is a general answer to that kind of question. I think the most important thing about means testing is how it actually makes the programs function. And that, you know, making everyone fill out 17 forms to verify their income is itself quite costly. Yeah. So I guess like to try to wrap up this section, I guess the main trap that I I worry about falling into myself and that other people I I think should worry about falling into is I think, I'm not sure whether you came up with this, the the pundits fallacy, uh, whether someone else came up with it, but it's like Mm -hmm. the delusion that the policy that you think is best on the the merits of its welfare outcomes is also the most popular politically, the thing that's going to to win elections. People really want to believe that, but it's it's not always true. In fact, it's very often probably not true. If someone's worried about falling into that trap, but they do have a belief that like a policy that they think is really good is is going to be popular, what should they do in order to like double check like whether they're deluding themselves or not? I mean, I think that the best thing to do is to try to look at real world political battles that have happened maybe in the past, maybe even in other countries. I mean, you were saying, you know, you you lived through carbon tax fight mm-hmm. in Australia. I I saw that happen. I paid some attention to it as it played out. And I think it it would be hard to have watched that 
and then be like, oh, but in America, the situation is wildly different, right? I mean, the situation <laughs> in America is different, but it, I can't think of any relevant way in which it's it's different. And it would just check you, right? And I'm I'm glad that the Labour Party tried that because I think it was the right thing to do. I also think it gave us useful information. It's good, actually, for smaller countries to be more experimental in their sort of political outcomes because it's it, it, yeah. it helps the bigger countries understand what's going on and what decisions we make are ultimately very, you know, more more consequential in the world just because we're, we're larger. And so I think that that's a good place to look for relevant evidence and then just be skeptical. I mean, just know that, like, of course, you want to believe that what's compelling to you would be compelling to everyone. But try to be reflective. Now, if you happen to be someone who is a big-time swing voter, who, you know, has a robust record of... Real middle-of-the-ground views, maybe. Well, or, or just feels cross-pressured, you know what I mean? For, for mm. whatever reason. I'm just If you can say honestly that you have voted for different parties multiple times and change your mind a lot about which party to support, then introspecting probably does tell you something realistic. But if you're not, right, trying to make up an idea of what you think someone who is like that would like to hear, that's pretty unreliable, you know? Um, and I think that that's really where people get into this fallacy territory is they, they have trouble empathizing with people who genuinely flip between the parties because that seems so mm. odd to, in, in America at least, the vast majority of people aren't like that. Right. I mean, it's something like 90 percent of the population are on one side or the other hardcore partisans. Mm. And it's a tiny number of, of flip floppers who are determining the elections. Yeah, yeah. OK, let's push on and talk about your general view on, I guess, what I'll call a military adventurism. Yeah. So, so you're not a foreign policy specialist in particular, but you, but you do take an interest in it, as most of us do. Uh, and in 2008, you wrote this book, Heads in the Sand, How the Republicans Screw Up Foreign Policy and Foreign Policy Screws Up the Democrats. Last year, you wrote pretty forcefully in favor of the US withdrawing from Afghanistan, and you continued to support it even after it became clear that the result would be the Taliban taking over the country very, very quickly. And more recently, you said you think the US should you know, promise not to enlarge NATO or deploy troops or military equipment in Eastern Europe if that keeps Russia happy and less likely to attack countries like, like Ukraine. So I think, yeah, I think it's fair to say that when it comes to overseas military intervention, you're pretty skeptical, though, mm -hmm. like I do, you favor coordinating and, and collaborating with other countries in, in lots of peaceful ways. When I asked my Twitter followers, uh, I basically asked my, my Twitter followers, like people who agree with Matt Iglesias, most of the time, what do you disagree with him about? And this you know, unwillingness to use military force was, was kind of a top pick with a whole lot of people saying that they were a lot more likely to be keen to have a go at using military force to, to use good than, than, uh, than you do. So I'd like to, yeah, talk about why you take the stances you do on foreign policy and where those could conceivably go wrong. Sure. You know, I mean, one thing I, I do want to say is that I feel like there is a um, tendency in the more hawkish school of thought in the United States to just completely want to ignore trade-offs of kind of aggressive behavior mm. and to focus, I just think, much too much on aligning yourself with being right mm. on certain kinds of things, right? So if you go back right now, we are worried about Russia going into Ukraine, Previously, we were arguing about whether the U.S. should try to sustain its military position in Afghanistan. A few years before that, we were worried about whether Russia was being too aggressive and going after Ukraine, hmm. right? And so after Russia invaded Crimea, the United States put some very severe sanctions on Russia to punish them for having done that. 
Russia reacted to that by closing off the northern supply lines through which, you know, NATO was moving military supplies and equipment Mm. into Afghanistan through Russia, Mm. uh, which, you know, is north of Afghanistan. And Russia has longstanding sort of strong interests in Afghanistan, which, you know, they perceive as being part of their neighborhood. At the time, nobody took that particularly seriously in the American policy community. It was seen as, well, we were doing the right thing. We were standing up for Ukraine. But by closing that northern supply line, which it supplied, quote unquote, only about 15 to 20 percent of NATO supplies into Afghanistan, but it made us completely dependent on Pakistan Hmm. for sustaining our bases there. But if you go all the way back to, you know, George W. Bush's memoirs, Barack Obama's memoirs, American policymakers had always, always said that the Pakistani government was playing a kind of double game in Afghanistan in which they were both our key allies, but they were also supporting the Taliban. So by deciding that we were so upset about Russia seizing Crimea, we made, I think, years ago, a decision to make winning, in effect, in Afghanistan impossible. Mm. So by the time Joe Biden is president, he's faced with this question, do we have thousands of troops indefinitely in Afghanistan, not to beat the Taliban, right, not to stabilize the country, but to prolong this war? And, you know, he said no, and I, I agreed with him no, but the, the people who would be on the other side of me on that, they were like also on the other side of me in the Crimea question. Mm. And they're also going to say, well, we need to do a lot to back Taiwan, say. Well, I'm actually more sympathetic mm. to the hawkish point of view. But to me, you know, the view that, well, we should cut Russia off from the SWIFT payment system, there's a cost to that in terms of our ability to build a coalition to contain China, right? Mm. You know, you have to have some sense of limits and focus in a world where the United States is not able to successfully dictate to every country around the world what it is they actually want to do. And I think that the American national security community, it tends to practice a kind of a a log roll where, you know, the... Afghanistan hawks and the Russia hawks and the China hawks and the people who are really mad about Venezuela kind of like all support each other. But that doesn't make sense. That's not how the world works. Because there's limited resources, basically. That's uh, if you want to spend more on Venezuela, then you've got to spend less on China or on something else. Well, particularly because the tendency is to half ass these things, right? Mm. Now, you could have said, okay, kicking Russia out of Crimea is incredibly important. Right. And we should go we should go all in on that. And I might have disagreed, but it might have worked. Right. But what we chose to do on the Crimea issue was apply a level of sanction that nobody had a good faith belief would actually cause Russia to back down, but which induced further costs to our position in Afghanistan. Hmm. And the reason we did it was because nobody has wanted to concede a a Russian sphere of influence in Ukraine. But have we achieved a lot for Ukrainian independence over Mm. the years, right? I mean, so so the United States has, and and I I don't want to cast this as the the sort of 
oh, woe is Russia, you know, Putin is right about everything initiative. But we have done a lot of things over the years. We have said that the door is open to NATO membership for Ukraine. When there was a protest movement in Ukraine against, you know, an authoritarian government there that was Russia aligned, we backed the protesters, you know, with words, with material resources, we we took their side. The, The European Union, not the United States, but, you know, tried to do this trade agreement with Ukraine that the Russians were very opposed to. We sanctioned Russia after they took over Crimea when factually, I think everyone agrees, like the vast majority of people living in Crimea are Russian speakers. They wanted to be part of Russia. But so we we sanctioned Russia there. And so these are all things that we have done for the sake of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. Hmm. But have Ukrainians actually been made better off? By any of this, have we been giving them false hope as to how much assistance they can actually expect from the United States? Especially in the from long Britain, run. From, right, in, in the long run, right? Mm. It seems like, it seems to me, just factually speaking, that in the end, Ukraine is going to end up in the Russian sphere of influence. And if we had been clear from the beginning about the fact that the West is actually not that interested in Ukrainian independence... Mm that Ukrainians would have been better off, right? That they had to make decisions. Um, There's this um, saying, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States of America. Mm. And Mexican politicians have, I think, had to embrace realism about that, that they are close to the United States of America. I think that we have tended to lie to the Ukrainians and made them feel that they are closer to God than they actually are. Um, but they're they're close to Russia. Yeah, right, right. I guess, yeah, the problem in that specific case is that Russia cares a lot about Ukraine and is willing to do a lot about it. And the reality is we care somewhat, but we just like, considering the coming decades, we're just not going to put in the resources that are commensurate with what would be necessary to, to stop Russia. And so it might make more sense to basically to concede that and give up <laughs> at the beginning rather than do the half-hearted thing and then give up later on anyway. I, it sounds like that's kind of your case. Right. I mean, you need to you need to gut check with what's really important and what's, you know, particularly for the United States. Right. It is um, the flip side of us being so far from much of the other great powers of the world is that it can be very tempting for us to engage in a kind of a a cheap talk. Right. Mm. So, you know, Americans have become very critical of Germany's approach to Russia because you know, they have this natural gas. I, I, I don't know 100% all, all the details. And maybe the Germans are wrong, right? I mean, if German people want to say internal to German politics, we are making a big mistake here. We shouldn't be turning off these nuclear power plants. We shouldn't be importing German gas. I mean, that all sounds like plausible to me. And, and, and you know, I, I, could be, I could be convinced. The flip side of that, though, is that the Germans actually have skin in the game on both sides, mm. right? So some people feel that if Russia dominates Ukraine, that's a huge risk to European security writ large, right? I mean, it's classic, you know, Munich appeasement kind of argument. Um, I think the Poles feel very strongly about this, as do the Lithuanians, people like that. So, you know, Europeans are closer to it, right? They bear both more costs from Russian aggression Mm. and also more costs from really confronting Russia super aggressively. If a united Europe was saying we like we really want to back Ukraine and we need some like piece of logistical help from the United States of America, like there's some kind of airplane part that we really need, mm. I'd be like, sure, you know, like give it to them. But it's it's really unclear to me 
how true that is versus Americans engaging in a kind of cheap talk. And, you know, nobody cared about this Afghanistan northern supply line thing when it was up there. So right now, you know, we're, we're freaking out about Russia. But six months from now, are we going to be freaking out about Iran? And, you know, is Russia selling them some thing that, you know, relates to their nuclear program? Are we going to be freaking out about China? Like, what do we care about? And we need to try to think think more rigorously about than I think we do. About these trade-offs, about what do we care about? Mm. Yeah, I guess, so we've gone into these specific cases very quickly. Is it possible to maybe step back to a like slightly higher level of, of abstraction and kind of say, yeah, what is your big picture take on US and allied yeah. countries using military force to make the, the world a better place? Absolutely. I, you know, this was my original entry point into the world of effective altruism hmm. because I was very taken in the late 90s by the kind of idea of humanitarian military intervention, by the idea that, you know, we were doing incredible good in the world in Kosovo and that, you know, this was like a big thing that post-Cold War, the American military could end genocide around the world and do all kinds of good things. You know, I think in Iraq, that line of thinking turned out poorly on a sort of first-order practical basis. But that also got me thinking about the question, right, of like, how how do you help people around the world? If you mm. want to take a non-national interest view of the world and say, you know, who, who do we help? And, you know, it just, it turns out that there are radically cheaper ways of helping people in need around the world. If you want to do something that is selfless, there's so much that can be done. We're not close to exhausting the possibilities for doing that. I try to do some of it with my personal giving. I try to encourage others to do it. I try to encourage the government to do it. But it began to seem to me like another area where we had to be more honest with ourselves as to like, what are we actually doing here? Is the military apparatus that exists really a tool for human betterment? Um, No, it can be, right? Um, When there was this tsunami in Indonesia, the fact that we have a a Navy, like the Navy is full of boats. Um, They're really good boats. They have really skilled sailors. They were able to deliver a lot of humanitarian relief aid. It was great that they did that. Uh, I'm not going to go like full paranoia. Like it was just a propaganda game to help the CIA, you know, Mm. dominate the universe. But it is not, I think, really helpful to think about military force as a primary tool for humanitarianism. The Mm. cost-benefit is not there. The incentives aren't aligned. It's not what the people are trained to do. And you see how quickly it turns. As long as we were fighting in Afghanistan, we would say we were doing all these good humanitarian things. Mm. The moment the Taliban takes over Afghanistan, we have them under severe sanctions that are causing a famine over there. So I think we should not do that. That famine is very bad. Um, But it's a a war-making tool, right? So their mission is to beat the Taliban. When beating the Taliban involves doing a certain amount of humanitarian propaganda, which involves a certain amount of humanitarian real stuff, Hmm. the military goes and does it. But the moment the way to beat the Taliban is to starve the country into submission, that's what that exact same kind of apparatus Hmm. flips to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so the basic idea is, look, here we want to evaluate military intervention based on its humanitarian outcomes. Like how how many people did it help? How much did it improve their well-being? How much did it cost in terms of dollars, in terms of equipment, in terms of talent, in terms of people? 
And basically, you just think if you like analyze that rigorously using the same kind of cost benefit <laughs> strategy that we do with everything else, then it looks way worse as a humanitarian approach than many other things that we could do. I mean, one obvious thing is if you put that money towards fighting disease, you know, giving antivirals to people with HIV, there's no army on the other side trying to, uh, you know, give more people HIV, trying to like push back and, and make things very difficult for you. You also just have like that most actions that you can do in the world are not a matter of like military, military conflict. There's a huge space of other ways that you could try to help people that don't involve the army. Well, and it's the, it's also that the impacts are so uncertain, right? So, mm. you know, so NATO intervened in Libya to prevent to prevent a specific massacre that they thought was about to occur and because they thought Gaddafi was like bad in general. You know, it was a costly intervention, but it, it also felt like they were doing a lot of good. But then you look at how that situation has played out over subsequent years, it's not obvious to me that on net there were any humanitarian benefits there. Mm. Um, now, maybe there were. I mean, it's just, it's very hard to say. Or you look at that intervention in Libya, and did that suggest to opposition forces in Syria that if they could provoke the Syrian government into massacring civilians, that NATO would intervene and help them win the civil war? I think that would have been a reasonable inference to draw from what played out in Libya. And I think that the people, the architects of that intervention may have even hoped that that inference would play out. The message they wanted to send was, hey, regimes of the world, don't massacre civilians or you may provoke intervention. But that also sends to opposition movements around the world, hey, if you can bait the regime into massacring civilians, you'll get an intervention. Mm. But it turned out they didn't get an intervention in Syria. They got an um, intractable civil war. They got massacres, they got an intractable civil war, they got, I mean, a, a huge humanitarian disaster. I don't want to say that that definitely wouldn't have happened if we hadn't have intervened in Syria, but I think we increased the the likelihood. And it's, again, it's a question of carelessness about what is the real impact of these kinds of things in the world, which is not, you know, casual proponents don't study it rigorously, but also the military, there are certain things they look at very closely, because they want to understand what they're doing and they want to get better at their jobs. Mm. And the global humanitarian situation is like not on that list. It's not something that they focus on. It's not the culture of the armed forces. It's not what they are for. Mm. And it's challenging because the policymakers will never, they don't speak honestly about their own commitment to humanitarian values. So, you know, we are very eager to back opposition figures against authoritarian regimes, like sometimes, but not against Kuwait, right? Like mm. there's no, there's not going to be a, a color revolution there. And, you know, we can say casually, it's like, well, that has something to do with oil or, or something, but but nobody is going to write down on a piece of paper, actually, what are the criteria in which the United States or other Western governments will back democratic opposition? When will we stop people from massacring? In part because we don't want to give like a clear green light mm. to authoritarian regimes. We always want the Saudis to be guessing, like how much can we get away with? But it, it makes it a very hazy landscape. And I think it's just not it's not closely comparable to global public health interventions mm. in terms of like we could do some more good if we could if we could convince people to care a little bit more mm. about distributing uh you know insecticide treated bed nets we could stop malaria cases yeah 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 i think uh, 
even the proponents would, uh, I think, concede that trying to forecast exactly what impact a military intervention is going to have is quite difficult and like substantially more difficult than figuring out uh, what the likely consequences are of, again, distributing antiviral drugs to people with HIV. <laughs> uh, you don't get the same kind of risk of, of massive blowback and like, yeah, and on net having negative effects, even though almost all interventions do have some risk of unintended consequences. And to, you know, to sign a, a more hawkish note, I mean, if we were talking about China. Mm. I am more more of a patriot, more of a hawk, more of a we got to help the allies kind of guy there. I think that that well, why is... is that? Well, so one thing is that I think that the stakes are higher, that Taiwan, Korea, Japan are fairly large, stable democracies. We have established alliance relationships with them. I think that, you know, backing out of existing defense commitments can be very destabilizing in its own kind of way. Um, I think that the PRC regime is really bad, has mm. proven itself to be really bad in its treatment of Uyghurs, in its treatment of Tibetans, in its general level of sort of aggressiveness. And I also think that China is a real, I don't quite want to say a threat, but a, a player on the world stage. Quite large economy, growing fast, very powerful. And there is something to the kind of old-fashioned idea of, you know, either the U.S. is going to be the kind of hegemonic player or China is, that there isn't some, there, there isn't some world in which it's going to be Norway. Um, and so, you know, for all the kind of flaws and hypocrisy of the American national security community, I think if you ask the people in Korea, in Vietnam, in India, in Japan, they are all more comfortable with the United States being a big player in that region than with mm. us not being a player in that region. And, you know, there are a lot of questions about what do you do specifically there, but I think we should do something. But to me, that's a reason not to be distracted by low probability of success ventures in Central Asia. Yeah. So yeah, we've been laying out the, the case against. To help see the limiting principle, like what is a case where you favored overseas military intervention or a case where maybe we didn't do it and we should have? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think that the first Persian Gulf War responding to an invasion of Kuwait with a high degree of efficacy, that that was good, that that worked out well. You know, I don't know that I would stipulate beyond that a lot of interventions that did happen. I mean, the best case for military force is where you have clear and credible commitments. I mm. think that, you know, one reason in some ways that I think it would be good to kind of forswear NATO involvement in Ukraine is that we've gotten very far with NATO with the idea that the U.S. and Britain and France and Canada and all these other countries will go to war to defend Lithuania, right? And I think a reasonable person could ask, like, is that really true? <laughs> like, would we really go to war for Lithuania? No. Um, but we've said that we will. We want the Russians to believe that we will. To now to say that we wouldn't, to like kick them out, could be very destabilizing, very, very dangerous. I see. So to clarify that like we are honest to God, like not going to make that commitment to Ukraine. We, we appreciate yeah. that it is very serious, but that this is a vow like we have really made 
to a bunch of countries and we stand by that and mm-hmm. we are going to focus on that. I think that that's important in some ways. We, we have these defense commitments. We want them to be credible. The other big thing that the American military does is it participates in some of these global public goods around piracy and sea lanes and things like that. Mm. And, you know, we don't talk about it a lot. It's not like, oh, remember that one time six years ago that a little flotilla scared off some Somalis? But that's good. I mean, it's good that we are not constantly talking about the big anti-piracy wars. Like that means that the that it's working, you know, and it's good to have these facilities out there. Yeah. Yeah, I guess cases that people sometimes bring up include, I guess, the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia to get rid of the Khmer Rouge as like a good humanitarian intervention. Admittedly, the Khmer Rouge was especially atrocious and oddly enough, kind of a US ally, I think at the time, or like a halfway like a US ally in Cold War politics. So that's, that's one case that people raise. I guess Bosnia, which is a case that I know less about. I guess the West didn't intervene in Rwanda and sometimes people regret that. Yeah, are there any other historical cases that you think are at least interesting? I mean, the Rwanda one is interesting, right? I mean, there's a lot of criticism of our failure to intervene there. And what I've never quite heard is what exactly the pro-interventionists would have liked to have seen happen. Mm. The thing that they normally say is, well, there's this very low-cost stuff that we could have done, you know, bombing certain radio stations that would have had a strong beneficial impact. And that might be true. Obviously, it would not be the end of the world to have blown up a couple of radio stations somewhere. But would that have satisfied the the desire, right? I mean, I think that what I know weighs on presidents, mm. right, when they actually get in office, is that if you say, okay, I'm going to do X because it's going to stop Y, but then if people are still being killed, mm. right, it's hard to go out in front of the cameras and be like, well... Actually, you don't did realize the radio stations, this, but that's but, it. Well, we're, well, under the counterfactual, where the radio stations, there are even more people would have been killed, right? The, instead, the reporters are like, uh, you know, they're still killing people there. Like, what are you going to do about it? And then, well, you're sending more people in. You're directly intervening into a civil war that's on the other side of the planet mm. whose stakes are very unclear. That's not well understood by American government officials. And it can get hard. I mean, a a book came out recently arguing that, in fact, the whole Western understanding of the origin of that round of fighting is mistaken. And Tutsi rebels brought down the prior president of Rwanda's plane after all. And Mm -hmm. Paul Kagame was the bad guy in all of this. So I don't know if that's true. I don't want to be too much of a Rwanda revisionist out here. But it seemed to me that certainly the people making these points don't know that the other thing is true, right? I mean, there's a there's a lot that we don't know about the dynamics of civil wars in foreign countries where we don't speak the language. I mean, I don't speak the language. You don't speak the language. I think most of our listeners don't speak the language. But also the decision makers at AFRICOM don't speak the language. Um, mm. One thing I can say about American-Russia policy is that we do have a lot of like Russia experts. There is a lot of subject matter knowledge about Russia that's been developed in the United States over the years. And and that is good. We're not completely blundering in the dark with no comprehension of what the issues are. But I feel like that's something we're often in the position of doing. It's a maybe something we should try to improve at. I think Americans have never been comfortable in a kind of, you know, quote unquote, imperial role around the world and have never invested in the idea that maybe we need important people who speak Pashto and can go run our little colony in Afghanistan. 
But there's also, you know, wisdom in trying to not try that hard. You know, the Vietnam-Cambodia case is an interesting one because I think you would say, well, there were clear humanitarian benefits to what the Vietnamese did there. Mm. But of course, that's also not the reason that they did it. You know, it's just a like, I mean, good for them, right? I mean, I, I don't think you can deny that that was a beneficial thing to do. But it's also clear that this just had to do with their you know, geopolitical conflict with China, hmm. not anything else. And so I, I don't totally know what to say about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my sympathies in general are kind of with the with the position that, that you're taking. But I do know smart people who are who are meaning who disagree and like often often think it is worth worth going in. So I'm gonna to try to represent uh, what, what what I think they might say. <laughs> yes. I guess so in the case of Afghanistan, I think a lot of people saw Taliban taking over, humanitarian crisis, looks terrible. And people who have a more effective altruist mindset were kind of doing calculations like, well, how much would it have cost to stay in there indefinitely every year? Like, what was the ongoing annual cost of mm-hmm. occupying the country in order to prevent the Taliban from taking over? Uh, like, not not having potentially the delusion that the Taliban's ever going to go. It's a kind of a, a very mm-hmm. long-term operation. Maybe, I guess, I just looked at the average over the last 20 years <laughs> that the US was in Afghanistan, and it was about $60 billion a year. And then you think, well, how many people do we get to live under, you know, the the Western-supported regime there rather than the Taliban? And maybe it's about half the country. <laughs> I mean, it, I guess it seemed like it went it went back and forth. And some people were under yeah. this kind of hybrid regime where it depended on the time of day, uh, which exactly which which government had more more control. But maybe that's like twenty million people. In which case, you come up with something like. $3,000 per person per year to have people living under one government or the other. And in a world where it seems like you can save a child's life for something like that, maybe that doesn't seem, seem, so, seem so great or it doesn't seem equivalently good to the very best global health interventions that, that, that we can find. But then you might think, well, if we stop you know, holding back the Taliban in Afghanistan, is the money going to be redirected <laughs> to these very best global health interventions? Maybe that actually isn't the trade-off at all because the American public is just never going to be persuaded to spend $60 billion on global health in that way. So it's kind of occupy Afghanistan or don't. And this money, mm-hmm. and otherwise the money just goes into some pool and who knows what it's going to be spent on. Could be something good, could be something bad. And then you could do worse than spending $3,000 a year to you know protect someone in Kabul from being under Taliban control. So what would you say to that kind of... Yeah, I mean, I mean, you didn't find me before this debate was was joined in a hot way out there being like, we got to get the troops out of Afghanistan, you know, like America with lots of K's in it, you know, protesting in front of the White House gates. Because I did see the view that, well, you know, this is better than sort of not doing it. But I kind of feel in these foreign intervention cases as sort of, um, you know, there's a conflict right between like an act and a rule consequentialist view Mm. of how to deal with the world. And my strong conviction is that the military as a humanitarian tool is a bad practice, that its cost effectiveness is really bad compared to the most effective interventions, that in many individual cases, it backfires and is net harmful, that the consequences are really, really, really unpredictable. I think it would be convenient if I could make the argument that like, no, actually everything that we've ever done in the name of humanitarianism is counterproductive and negative. And I think that that's a little bit of an underrated perspective. Mm-hmm. People doing that kind of math, I think, tended to neglect the fact that like the war happening had very negative humanitarian, you know, consequences, yeah. right? There was all this bombs dropping and different things happening in the areas where the war was fighting. And that the people who were most represented in the Western media were people who lived in Kabul, 
where our security umbrella was at its most useful and people who were educated spoke Western languages, et cetera, but that there were lots of people, you know, living in villages, living already under Taliban control, Mm. but not enjoying the fact that they were getting attacked, you know, back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. All that being said, I mean, yes, there can be these benefits in original sort of specific cases, but I don't think that it's a good mentality to cultivate that this is what we are doing, that we are going to solve global problems that way. And there's a real, not not in the, you know, in the, in the space that you occupy, I think it is taken for granted that there are all of these highly effective interventions that we could be doing. Mm. I think that that is still not a mainstream perspective in American political commentary, that there is this real axis of, well, so either you are an isolationist or you are really enthusiastic about the use of American military force abroad. And, you know, so either you're just a table-pounding national interest guy, or you, like, want to have lots of wars everywhere. And I think it is just so important to bring the message to people that... Um, That's this other option. This... Well, I mean, not just like another option, but that it's like, it's not even close, Mm. you know, that like, if you actually want to say, hey, we should care a little bit more about humanitarian issues in the world, that the amount of money that's involved in that is, is like trivial compared to what it costs to keep an aircraft carrier circulating around the world. Mm. Um, And so I don't know how, you know, full of BS American elites are when they say they care about the global world, but I don't think they're a hundred percent full of shit. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they do care like a little, and if they could direct that tiny amount of caring in a reasonable way, they could do an incredible amount of good. And they might even start feeling better about themselves and get in like a virtuous cycle where we're like actually accomplishing things Mm. that do good. And I just like, I don't think that that's what is going on in Afghanistan on like a really fundamental level. Yeah. Yeah. Because a few other things one could say on this is, uh, you know, it, it's not realistic to think that most of the money saved from leaving Afghanistan or like even very much of it is going to go towards what we think of as the very best humanitarian interventions. But it's also maybe you're then not thinking about, is it politically plausible to go to an American public and say, we want to spend $60 billion a year occupying Afghanistan forever or like for the indefinite future because of the humanitarian benefits to, to people in Kabul and, and other more urban areas of, of Afghanistan? Kind of the American public will at some point get sick of it and either withdraw completely or withdraw enough that they weren't effectively controlling most of the country. Well, or if that's plausible, right? If you mm. think you could win a political argument for $60 billion forever for in Afghanistan, mm. why not Why not get $5 billion for the bed nets, right? Mm. If the argument is that, well, this is going to be sustainable because even though the cost benefit is so bad, It involves soldiers, so we can lie to people and say that it's a national security imperative. Mm -hmm. Then it starts to get, that's like a rickety argument, right? That's like, reminds me of, you know, my six-year-old, like, gluing popsicle sticks together (laughs) in a really awkward way. There's like, and I, I think that, you know, I think that we all need to be cautious of the fact that, you know, we can construct bad arguments, because they serve certain kinds of psychological ends. Mm. And I think that a lot of what you have in this national security discourse is people wanting to align themselves with the good guys, right? That taking the side of giving in to Putin or giving in to the Taliban, that that's like a bad feel. And if you say, 
no, we shouldn't withdraw this year. Like, we don't have to. And somebody else is like, yeah, but we're going to withdraw at some point. And so the bad thing is going to happen. It's like, well, but it's not going to be my idea to withdraw, right? And I think that that's been compelling to a lot of presidents, right? That the Obama administration did not believe that they had a winning strategy in Afghanistan, but they also didn't want to be the ones who suffered the fall of Kabul. So they punted it to Trump, Mm. who did not believe he had a winning strategy in Afghanistan, but didn't want to be the ones who saw the fall of Kabul. So he punted it to Biden. And I think that the Biden administration's experience, just as a pure matter of politics, has 100% vindicated the cynicism of Obama and Trump, right? I mean, he has taken so much more political damage for admitting that he didn't have a strategy to win the war than the Obama administration took for lying about it. Well, for putting and him in that ha- situation. For, for, no, but, yeah. but I mean, they called it the, the Afghanistan Papers, but it's been very well documented. I mean, there was all this information coming into D.C. from generals on the ground that was like, this stuff that we're doing isn't working. All this money we're spending on the Afghan army, like it's all being wasted and taken away. But the, the right thing to do... I mean, in a narrow sense, was to kick it down the road. So, I mean, I I, I feel kind of like fired up about this Afghanistan issue mm. just because it's a... I don't normally recommend that political leaders try to do the right thing, regardless of the political cost. I think that's a somewhat... It's easy to say that you think people should do that, but but I think in some ways doesn't stand up to that much scrutiny. Mm. Uh, but Biden actually did it, but it's very costly, you know? Taking a taking a sort of principled stance is risky business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, I, I did have the reaction, like, right or wrong, it's like blaming Biden for this situation was like a bit absurd rather than blaming like the people who'd been, you know, creating the situation that we were presently in for the last 20 years. It seems like clearly a lot of responsibility has to go to the, to the people earlier in the chain. I mean, there was, there was a definite, you know, it's like you see these guys, you'd be like a general who commanded for years there would come on TV and be like, oh, Joe Biden, he really screwed this up. Like, well, what about you? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, okay, so I'm doing a bad job defending interventionism here. But I guess another thing I, uh, <laughs> that I wanted to raise is that I think sometimes when doing this cost-benefit analysis, it's possible to be somewhat starry-eyed, somewhat unrealistic about the actual benefit, the humanitarian benefit being provided to people on the ground. So in order to like evaluate how how much should we be willing to pay to keep people under Western government rather than the Taliban, we need to like say, well, how good is this government that we have in, in Afghanistan? Like, what services is it providing? And then realistically, to someone who's in a village in Afghanistan, like, how much would they hate being under under the Taliban? And I think it's very hard including for me, to get away from thinking about how I would feel about that situation mm-hmm. and like how I would like the government that we're putting in there to be rather than how it actually is. And also, I mean, I'm not super informed, so I get to imagine, you know, <laughs> what would a good government do rather than like how does this government actually function and how corrupt is it? And likewise in, in Ukraine, obviously, like I feel on a gut level revolted by the idea of Russia again taking over Ukraine after Ukrainians have suffered under the, the yoke of Russia throughout history many, many times. But then if I actually like <laughs> try to think on a, on a moment-to-moment basis, day-to-day basis, like how much worse off would Eastern Ukrainians or Crimeans be if they were in Russia rather than in Ukraine? I'm not sure like what the well-being cost is exactly or how, how large it would be in the, in, in the long term. I mean, it's, I, you know, this is where like long-termism as a philosophy, I think is very important, but challenging. I think that even people who are bought into it we all, myself included, struggle to sort of apply these insights outside of the kind of specialized domain where people are like, as a long-termist, I care a lot Mm. about X risk, right? But it's really, I mean, if we think about things people are just arguing about and we think about them without 
like extreme discounting. Like, how much does it matter to the long-term future of Ukraine, whether it's governed from Kiev or from Moscow, right? Like, there's, like, a way of doing the, like, Russian nationalist perspective on this, where, like, it's never been its own country. It's not even a real language. And, like, that's stupid. That's that that's crazy. Mm. But we do know, though, is that the political boundary lines of Eastern Europe have varied quite a bit over history and is a lot of contingency into how language families are constructed constructed, how political allegiances and political identities are constructed. And it's just not obvious that one way or the other is going to produce superior outcomes for the longer run, right? I mean, there was this um, incredible, I don't want to say fad, but there, there was a sense around the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries that the political organization of Central and Eastern Europe was like really bad. It was really bad to have the Habsburg Empire and that we should reorganize everything along the lines of national boundaries as they said, like Spain and France and the UK were, but Mm. I think actually weren't. And I don't think that experiment turned out well at all, at least in the medium run. Um, a lot of bad things happened to try to reorganize Central and Eastern Europe along nationalistic lines. They are now the most homogenous countries around, you know, mm. Poland and Czechia, Slovakia. They really conform to the nation state ideal in a way that the countries that originated it don't. But it's like, like, what was the benefit of that? In the end, like after after all that bloodshed, like what what occurred there? So I don't want to like defend imperial projects, but why should we be so bought into nationalistic projects either? Yeah. Coming back to Ukraine, I think someone who wanted to advocate for NATO taking a fairly active stance there would say something like, we've managed to reduce the number of invasions, like cross-country invasions and annexations massively, close to zero. We really want to preserve that norm. And so when Russia did the first like blatant annexation in many, many Mm -hmm. years. We wanted to make this extremely costly to them so that other countries would see that and be deterred from invading other countries. Mm -hmm. And the idea would be, well, we could impose costs on Russia that would seem very costly to Russia and scare off other countries at not too high a cost, not too high a risk of causing nuclear war. We would do the sanctions. We would like, yeah, impose impose economic irritation. We would send weapons to people they don't like in, in Ukraine, like just kind of hassle them and be like, well, you did something we don't like, so we're going we're gonna to be a, a pain in your ass. And then likewise, they might think today, Russia wants to invade Ukraine, but we could deter them for an acceptable cost by threatening to like tit for tat, be like even more of a, <laughs> an annoyance to Russia if they go ahead and do this thing that we, that we really hate. What's kind of, yeah, I, I suppose sometimes that kind of logic might be right. Mm-hmm. But what's, yeah, what's, what's going wrong sometimes with that reasoning? I mean, I definitely think that that is the best characterization of the American government's actual policy, which Mm. has not been actually to help Ukraine, but to inflict costs on Russia, right? Which is some of that has been the sanctioning, but some of it has been the drip, drip, drip arms and supplies to Ukraine, right? We have been giving successive Ukrainian governments enough support to induce them to not give up. But not more. Right? Um, Which is which is costly to Russia, right? And I think in some ways it is a little bit cruel to Ukrainians, right? They are being used to establish some kind of normative concept in the abstract that Mm. does not have that much to do with the actual interests of the typical person, you know, living in Kiev or, or, or wherever else. It is an important norm. You know, I cited the the original Persian Gulf War as something that I thought, you know, was worth 
doing. Unfortunately, I think that you need to think it would be desirable, I should say, to think about this norm and its enforcement in a more kind of global and comprehensive route. Um, if you go back to Maiden Square, right, if, if you could travel back in time mm. and get into meetings with Victoria Nuland, and I mean, you probably couldn't have gotten a Oval Office meeting on the subject of U.S. policy toward Ukraine mm. in 2013. But in retrospect, they should have held a meeting, right, and been like, let's be a little less careless about this. And say, okay, there's this protest movement. Our specialists want to back the protest movement. We want to overturn this autocrat because he's bad. We also like that the opposition is pro-European and they want to do a trade deal with the EU. So, but now it's like, let's think about all the considerations here. What if Putin loses it? and decides he wants to invade and take over the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine, what are we going to do? And then it's like, well, we got to do something because we need to uphold the norm that that's bad. But we're not going to actually fight a war with Russia, (laughs) right? So how good a job are we going to do of upholding the norm? And say, well, what are we going to do? I mean, are we going to make a big public statement that's like, We don't care about the Ukrainian opposition because we're worried that it'll lead Putin to call our bluff and undermine global norms. It's like, no, but what if we just supported them less, right? What if we just turned all the dials down 30%? Hmm. Then someone would say, well, no, that's bad because then they'll lose. But maybe that would be good, right? That would just be just another sad case of people living under an authoritarian regime, which unfortunately a lot of people do, right? But we could uphold all of our norms through the kind of private hypocrisy. Something that that I was struck by is, you know, back in 1955, Austria issued a unilateral declaration of perpetual neutrality in which they said that they would never join a military alliance with any country for any reason. The day after they made that unilateral declaration, Soviet occupation forces left the country. And because Soviet occupation forces left the country, so did U.S., French, and British forces. And today, that unilateral declaration day is like the national holiday Mm. in in Austria. And the Austrian state treaty, which had been agreed to by the four powers before that, didn't actually go into effect until Austria unilaterally forswore NATO membership. Now, of course, for the Western powers to make Austria forswear NATO membership would have been totally unacceptable right? They're a sovereign country, a democracy, etc. For Austria to say that as a concession to the Soviet Union, unthinkable, right? Mm. It's appeasement, blah, blah, blah. But it's it's lucky that things worked out in that <laughs> coincidental way. And I think in an era before the internet and before intense media cooperation, it was easier to handle things in a hypocritical way with a lot of winks and nudges and nobody really knows what was said to whom when. Mm. And You know, the whole Ukraine thing, if you had gone way back and said, look, our core interest here is in not having there be an overt invasion, Hmm. you could have handled it so many different ways. Yeah, interesting. I guess when talking about overseas intervention, I find that people who I I read, including sometimes you, tend to use the expression that it's like it's not in the US national interest when Mm -hmm. we would never regard that as like a decisive argument in other areas. Like, whether it's in the U.S. national interest to prevent kids dying of malaria, kind of, you know, we should do it anyway. It's the moral thing to do. Mm-hmm. But this is often this is often raised as a reason to, you know, just get out of Afghanistan or, or whatever else. Yeah. Why, why do you make that argument sometimes, even though you wouldn't probably make it in other areas? 
Yeah, I mean, again, because I think it's important to try to be clear and rigorous in what it is that we are talking about. I would make the argument that it's not particularly in the American national interest to invest heavily in anti-malarial drugs if someone was seriously offering the argument that it was. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, if we were if we were having a debate about, you know, how do we, you know, prevent Americans from being killed by terrorists and someone was like, well, what we really ought to do is distribute malaria drugs. I'd be like, no, like that. Make people like like us and then they went, yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you could do it, right? I would say like, no, like, I don't think that that makes sense. Now, if somebody wants to say, look, this is a really good way to help people, you know, that's great. Mm. You know, I'm kind of a a human in terms of what motivates people. I think it's hard to have a coherent argument that's like you should care about the abstract well-being mm. of, of other people. I think that most of us do care about the abstract well-being of other people, at least some of the time. Very few people are like, no, I don't care at all. There's no interest whatsoever in, mm. in helping others. And then it's good to think about how to do that. And then we have other modes in which we're thinking about American national security or we're thinking about geopolitical competition. And it's good to try to think about what is and isn't actually useful there, what is and isn't actually helpful there. You could say some given military intervention is being done for selfless humanitarian reasons. But I mean, as I think we've been talking about for a long time, I think that's a pretty dubious kind of line of argument, just like saying that malaria drugs are how we're going to fight terrorism. I don't think that lethal assistance to Ukraine is how we're going to accomplish humanitarian ends. Um, People try to do more than one thing in their life. Certainly governments do. Democratic polities do. I don't think that trying to push everyone to be maximum cosmopolitanism 100% of the time is that constructive of a way to engage with the political system. Mm. We're trying to, you know, operate on different different margins at different times. And I do, though, I mean, I would always encourage everyone to try to think more cosmopolitanly, but I see it as more the opposite, that cosmopolitan rationales get opportunistically invoked in the military context. Yeah. What do you think is the best argument that the Hawks have? If you're, if you're like, what do you hear... In 10 years' time, you Mm -hmm. came to think it's like it was kind of misguided. Uh, Yeah, why why might that be? You know, I mean, I think that the case that I I disagree with, but I don't know that I have a knockdown argument against the idea that just pushing in the hawkish direction all the time is like ultimately the only way to prevent the world being overrun by bad autocrats, right? Like I'm Mm. saying, let's like keep our powder dry. Let's focus on where we can really accomplish things. I agree that containing China is important. I agree that supporting the alliance system is important. I think the view on the other side is it's like, look, we just, we do what we can. We are rolling the ball uphill against the selfishness and short-sightedness of the American people. And if we can make a stand in Ukraine or in Afghanistan or Taiwan or Lithuania or wherever it is, like we're just going to defend all the hills because they are all important. Um, I don't I don't find that line of thinking attractive in some way. To me, mm. it feels intellectually dishonest. I don't I don't love Straussian type political interventions where I'm saying, well, we've got to tell people one thing for the sake of this other thing. Mm. But I don't I don't know that it's wrong. wrong. Yeah. You know, that like 
I mean, I guess this is like an actual Leo Strauss example, but like people believing in God might be good, even though I don't think it's true. And, you know, I might be uncomfortable spending a lot of time running around the world being like, stop going to church, man. Like, this is all lies. Mm. Uh, because, because I think it probably is on average good for people to go to church and to believe in God and mm. to do these things. But like, I don't, I don't think it's you wouldn't correct. Go out and, <laughs> you wouldn't go out and advocate for religion on that basis, yeah. But I don't, right. I mean, I wouldn't advocate for religion, but I'm also not super comfortable advocating against mm. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, someone on Twitter put you this question. Realistically, what's the best shot at liberal democracies retaining the balance of global power in 50 years? An easy one. Well, what do you mean? What, what's the best shot? Yeah, um, so the question I mean, is, yeah. What's... Th- th- this is my book. This is One Billion Americans. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, okay. yeah, do you want to make a quick pitch for that? I, I got on a great, a great length about it. I, you know, I mean, look, I think that we should see the, I mean, you could apply this to other countries too, but particularly the strong demand to migrate to wealthy liberal democracies is a real source of strength for those countries, economically, but also geopolitically, and that we should be taking that much more seriously, taking much more advantage of it. There's also, you know, things about fertility rates and and, and pro-family policies there, but like, we should have there be lots of people in America and in Canada, Australia, Germany, all these countries, they are good. People like vote with their feet to want to go live in them. And, you know, we don't need to be full-on open borders to be less paranoid about Mm. the idea that people are going to come live in the best countries in the world. Yeah, I mean, just doubling the U.S. population would make its military commitments far more credible because it would have twice as much GDP and it would make its cultural clout much, much larger. And it would also have lots lots more resources for the humanitarian work as well. Uh, So it kind of would expand on all of these dimensions. And I also think there's this this fundamental dilemma in our relationship with China right now, which is it's very dangerous to have lots of conflict with China, right? There's lots of downside risk to that, lots of problems for the world. At the same time, you know, China seems pretty bad. There's lots of good normative reasons to want to help allies, to resist them. And right now, if you sit around a table, you know, if if Xi sits down with Joe Biden and he says, President Biden, you know, I'm always trying to make China richer. We're trying to have catch up economic growth. Economic growth in China has done all this good for the world. It's reduced poverty. And any national leader just wants his people to do well. But if we do well, we're going to become more powerful than the United States. So I think that you, every day, are trying to undermine us. You come and you say this thing about wet markets or gain-of-function research or climate change or open trade or freedom of the seas, but I don't believe you. Mm. I think that you're a patriotic American leader who believes in American values, does not want China to be the most powerful country in the world. So I think that all you do is sit with your advisors at night and scheme about how to undermine China and destroy our prosperity. Mm. And then Biden's going to be like, that's not true. Like, that's that's a lie. That's not mm. what we do here. You're being crazy. But it's like, well, what are we doing? Right? Like, what is the... What is the plan? What is our message to the world about how we stay on top without taking down everybody else? And the one billion Americans idea is like an answer to that question. Yeah. You know, that we do not accept the the premise that we have to be the third largest population country in the world. That we are, I mean, in terms of different things happening here, it's like, you know, we're going to be as helpful as we can to our friends in India 
We are going to be as welcoming as we can to people who think the American way of life is great. We are going to help American parents have children. And we are going to wish China well. Like, yes, a little bit skeptically, but like, we are glad that there's less poverty there. We are hoping that you guys invent great things and and do good stuff for the world. But like, we're staying on top. And it's your problem that people don't want to move to your country Mm. because you've created this dystopian surveillance state. And, you know, that's on you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's let's move on and talk a bit about some intellectual communities that I'm very mm-hmm. familiar with and that a lot of listeners will be familiar with that I'm, I'm kind of just curious to hear your general impressions about. And that's a effective autism community and the, and the long-termist community. Yeah, I imagine you've largely just read or listened to the content that people like, like we uh, put out, but you might still have some pretty useful impressions or advice. And, and I wouldn't hold back because listeners to the show, when I meet them and when they're online, they, they both love flattery, but they, but they also really like a constructive <laughs> criticism. So yeah, what, what, what do you make of effective altruism, basically? I'm for it, I think. I, I want to be effective. I want to be <laughs> altruistic. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's good. I mean, I think that these lines of thought are very good. You know, we were talking about foreign policy before, and I should have said this is actually one of my kind of like EA origins is when I was in college, I saw Peter Singer lecture about Iraq. And I was an Iraq War supporting student at that time. And I thought that what he had to say was very impressive and challenging to sort of my preconceptions. But part of why, you know, I went to see him in the first place is that I had no idea what he thought about foreign policy, but I just like read some of his general books about you know, normative ethics and, and stuff like that. And so I, I was bought in and, and therefore open to it. So, you know, I think it's great. Something I worry about is that as it's as you start to have a community, all communities can become a little bit of a sort of like extreme version of themselves hmm. when that isn't necessarily where intellectual movements actually do good in the world at the margin. Hmm. So your concern would be um, if people are all talking to one another or they're trying to you know, impress other people who kind of re- agree with their, their broad worldview, you tend to get this extremizing effect over time and people kind of maybe solidifying views that, are, that have gone too far in, in, in some well, direction. And that's like not, not the most accurate. Or- I mean, I mean the, the views can be wrong, but also they can become a... There's a world where, okay, what is effective altruism? Effective altruism is the idea that we should be more critical and more rigorous about our altruistic impulses, right? And that we should push people to ask the question, is this really a good way to help people? Are you too focused on things that are close to you in your community, too focused on things that get praised by other people? Or should we cast a wider net? Should we deploy more empirical, rigorous empirical methods when we evaluate our programs? And and that's good. Like those are like a good set of questions, a good set of pressures in the world. And so we say, you know, is military intervention humanitarian? Should we be clapping for the guy giving money to the art museum? Mm. Uh, here's this great study about bed nets in, in malaria, right? But then you have a community that buys those premises and they start talking to each other a lot. And they eventually develop the idea that, well, we also should think about the long term and we shouldn't mm. discount it all. And if you don't discount it all, the only thing that really matters is human extinction. And a bunch of smart people have thought about this. And the biggest threat to human extinction is rogue artificial intelligence. So now we've all like read that book and we've all put it around. And now what it means to be an effective altruist is you say to somebody, it's like, what's on your mind? You're just like the threat of human extinction, 
due to artificial intelligence. And yeah. a large share of people are going to hear that and they're going to be like, what? <laughs> like, that's weird. Yeah. And an even larger share of people are going to be like, well, what does that even have to do with me? Mm. Right. And so now you're not actually asking people to be more self-critical about their charitable giving or to, at the mm. margin, mm. give more money. Right. You're not pushing. You don't it. really have anything to tell people or anything to say that's like actually actionable. Right. Or, 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 that that they can or it's not actionable on the margin. You're asking people to take this um, Kierkegaard like leap. And like join the mm. community, right? Mm. As opposed to be in your community and living your life and caring about roughly the things you care about, but like shift your orientation a little Imagine, bit, yeah. right? And I think that you become less effective, like in a in a meta sense, when you become this like set of doctrines that are quite odd and mm. esoteric to most people. And that also don't have a lot to do with people's lives and the decisions lives. that they are actually yeah. making versus one that's trying to say to people, you know, for your end of the year charitable contributions, consider the GiveWell Maximum Impact Fund, you know, as Selena do. Yeah. Think about giving a little bit more than you usually do. Think more critically about the doing allowing distinction in your life, you know, <laughs> which are like, there's a really important real world messages, I think. And as I've seen this evolve over the years, I both like am myself somewhat bought in and like try to get people to think more about X risk and other stuff like that. But I worry also that the most broadly relevant stuff can get lost a little bit. Mm. Yeah, it's a very interesting kind of challenge that you have as a substantially like a pretty large now group of people where it's like you both want to make sure that you preserve the ability to take advantage of this sort of avant-garde altruism or these like avant-garde ideas that might allow you to you know, pioneer some new area that people were neglecting that they shouldn't have been and like identify new problems and new solutions that are really off the off the beaten track. But you also don't want to lose the potential to shift lots of people in a positive direction on the margin of doing stuff that's more relevant to their lives, ideas that they can connect with. But these things are like quite intention, especially I suppose, because the like more avant-garde ideas can often be more interesting and like provoke people a bit more and like get people into debates and, and like draw in a lot of the conversation, even if for the great majority of people they're very hard to action <laughs> and also just are like easier to dispute. Like there's a lot more premises that are going into them. So it's like less clear that they're correct. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was interested when, when I started hearing about people I know going to effective altruism conferences, I both thought to myself, well, that actually doesn't sound very effective altruism-y. Like I always associate mm. effective altruism with ideas like, I don't know, like, like maybe don't do the conference, just give the money, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like for that airfare uh, could, could do a lot of good in the world, but also, you know, why do people like going to conferences? Well, you know, it's mm. good. You meet people, you hang out, you have a good time. So that's totally understandable. I'm not against people having fun. So we, it's, it's a movement, it's sort of kind of self, um, it disproportionately attracts, I think, you know, quantitatively minded people, people who are sort of above average in their, their analyticness, their interest in abstract ideas. And so, well, what's the most fun part of this to think about, right? Mm. And it's like, well, maybe a lot of speculations about artificial intelligence. Research. Um, <laughs> yeah, it just like, it suits us well, right? Like we got a lot of people who are working as computer programmers and we're saying that that's really important. And we're actually losing the part where we are trying to like bring the gospel to the world, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. 
Because because I do think that this is a, a kind of a, and I mean it not in an insulting way, but a kind of a modern day version of a religious movement that has a kind of a distinct Parfit-derived metaphysics in which the ethics relate to the metaphysics and all this kind of stuff. And that's good, right? But like... It's definitely a worldview. Yeah. No, but I mean, but the but the goal... Sh- it's a cosmology, maybe. Sure. <laughs> but, but it's like the, the goal should be to get people, get people into the worldview and not just to like be in the monastery studying the higher mysteries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, is there anything you'd say differently about long-termists or people focused on existential risks that's different from that? Or any way that they could potentially be more impactful? I mean, I, obviously, these are sort of aligned and adjacent, you know, kinds of things. I mean, I think, again, the... Um, so the basic long-termist point, right, is that we should not discount the future, you know, in the way that we do. And that's actually a very general point, right, that has a lot of applications to different things in the world. And I just would like to see long-termists doing long-termist interventions kind of across the board and trying to encourage people to do less discounting, you know, in the whole dimension of things, rather than zeroing in exclusively on the existential risk problem, which I don't want to say is not important. It obviously is quite important. And I I think we started this podcast with me trying to say <laughs> to people who are not regular listeners of yours that, you know, it, it should be it should be more important, but that this is just an issue that comes up all the time. There's this kind of esoteric question in American public policy about whether the Congressional Budget Office should score the cost of federal credit programs by using the market rate of interest rather than the government's actual rate of interest. Mm. And I I really firmly believe that they shouldn't. Uh, but there's a lot of smart people of good faith, and like they really believe that the current scoring methodology is wrong, that this is a, an illusion that the government can save money by tapping its cheap cost of funds because the market interest rate is the true uh, social... True opportunity cost. Yeah, is, is the true social discount rate. And I would say that that is actually the high status position that like the majority of smart wonky people want to make this change. And they think, and the. But it's deliberately making things more short term. Right. <laughs> Thinking less right. about the but future. The, but so the normal construction of this is like, well, like lazy leftists like the CBO scoring methodology, but like smart wonks understand that the market interest rate is a better source of the true cost. And like, I really want to like bring in the like big picture. I mean, I I was a philosophy major in college, which I feel like is never relevant to anything, but it's like incredibly relevant to this. And I'm like yelling at these economists all the time that like, no, there is no good reason to encourage the political system to engage in more short-term thinking. That, like, that's an insane idea. And the fact that you happen to not like the federal student loan program is, like, not a good reason to endorse this, like, dumb metaphysics about the world. Yeah. Yeah, so a listener wrote on Twitter that uh, last year you said on the Rationally Speaking podcast that you were trying to become more of a rationalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how has that gone and what have been the the obstacles? You know, it's an up and down struggle. I mean, I I, tr- I tried to do, a, you know, a explicit quantified forecasting exercise on my blog. I did a terrible at it. Um, <laughs> it. It was really painful to look back. And that, you know, that experience is just a reminder that there are, there's a genuine 
pain point in trying to be precise in what you say. Mm. I have found it difficult. I mean, it's it's not that it's hard to do. It's that it's professionally and interpersonally challenging to not make predictions that I don't stand behind, to express uncertainty about things that I sincerely feel pretty uncertain about. Mm. I thought that I had like tamped down the certainty level of my predictions, but I was actually way overconfident. You know, so I both felt that I've been struggling to be less overconfident and I'm still being too overconfident. And it's actually really hard, I think, to come to grips with the scope of uncertainty about things. I mean, I was in, you know, a conversation with people and half of them were like really sure that if Republicans have a majority in the future, they're going to change the filibuster rule. Mm. And the other half of them were really sure that they wouldn't. And it was just hard to like participate in the conversation as the guy who's like, I think you're both making reasonable points and it's kind of hard to say what's going to happen and it's probably going to depend, which I, in this case, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go (laughs) with like my forecast that it's difficult to say, but it's like, it's just hard to know how to actually participate in society Mm. with it. Like, how do I pitch that (laughs) op-ed? That's like, (laughs) I don't know what will happen. (laughs) That's like Democrats. Keep in mind that you don't really know what's going to happen in the future. Like, I, maybe, you know, like it's... Maybe a, it's, it's a sufficiently neglected approach that people would be interested in that op-ed. Right, yeah. maybe. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one, you know, because yeah. it's not just done for bad faith or instrumental reasons, but so much of how people in my line of work raise alarm about things is by claiming that they are very likely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's challenging rhetorically to be like, I want you to pay more attention to this improbable thing without phrasing it as this improbable thing is actually super likely. Yeah, yeah. I do actually see newspaper articles saying it's really hard to say what's going to happen with X, but I think they're almost always in the Financial Times and directed at investors. <laughs> who yes. I think like are very interested to hear about like it's really hard to say what China's going to do about trade here. <laughs> no, and, uh, and, they need and to know. And it's it's a good example of the, the the structural problem with political news as an industry is that it is it's a cheap talk audience. Yeah. You know, and the business press is largely aimed at providing actionable information to people who arguably have something at stake. And so there is much more interest on the audience side Mm. in equivocation and delivering bad news and delving into the details of things that are a little bit tedious than in the political domain. Yeah. Because Lately, with some kinds of financial assets getting much more valuable, it's sort of like, in principle, there might be billions of philanthropic dollars available to work on long-termist and existential risk-focused projects mm-hmm. if, if really high-quality opportunities can be found. Yeah, do you have any ideas for what yeah, mega donors who generally agree with your take on things, like what way they should be looking to, to grant their money? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you, when you kind of scale, right? I mean, you have to choose between continuing to put marginal money into things that you are really convinced will be good, but where the marginal return may be bad versus, you know, you're at you're at the better margin, but you're less sure about the project. Mm. And I think that with the kinds of influx of money 
that seem to be on the offing, that it is time to like fund the bad projects to be a little weird about it. Um, Just because I think a lot of the, I, I think, you know, a lot of the main areas that have been clearly identified as compelling don't have super clear funding needs right now. And so things like, Maybe we should try to fund more media projects and try to get a large popular audience for content that has some EA and long-termist themes in it. That could be good. Maybe we need more technical analysis of wildlife population dynamics, not because we're convinced that the welfare of wild animals is the most important thing in the world, but because... We've got to go down we, the return curve. <laughs> yeah, but it's because we really don't seem to be anywhere in like understanding that problem. And yeah. it's not unimportant and nobody's worried. I mean, it's very neglected. Yeah. Right. So, you know, but that gets to be more uncomfortable. I mean, going back to the question of, um, so if the initial EA wave is like, we need to spend money on things that aren't necessarily validated by mainstream society. Mm. Now I think the next thing is we need to spend money on things that aren't necessarily validated by the highest status, biggest influencer people in the AA world. Mm. Not because there's necessarily anything wrong with them or their ideas, but when you've succeeded in getting more money, you got to go into the the weirder kinds of spaces there. Yeah, I mean, one way I w- would think of this is like, as you scale, as like each time you get 10 times more money, you have to diversify across lots of different approaches for like thinking about things and finding stuff because you're just going to saturate the ones that you have already. So it's like you have like one analytical framework for finding like great grant opportunities that's worked at the $100 million scale, but you just won't be able to find enough stuff that fits really well within that framework and scores really well at the at the billion or $10 billion scale. So you're like, now you need to like think about different ways that you can get an edge, different ways to get an alpha, yeah. And there's more sort of like almost like abstract research type questions that start Mm. becoming relevant, right? Like, does Hindu nationalist politics have a positive impact on animal welfare? You know, because it is preventing Indians, middle-class Indian people from increasing their meat consumption as they become wealthier. Like, I don't know. I I mean, I, I met a guy who very strongly made the case to me that that was true. It seemed plausible. It was weird. I was like, really? And then he like showed me three statistics. I was like, okay, like that might be true. Uh, As far as I know, nobody is researching that because in a classical scholarship sense, I think if you went to an American academic conference and like proposed that, people said, well, that's weird. That's that's not an interesting question. That's not what academics do. But like it actually is an interesting question, you know? And it's like, we got to look at that. There's There's a lot of odd angles that are worth investigating if you have a lot of resources to deploy versus if you're saying, you know, you know, open philanthropy spins out of GiveWell, which spins out of a couple management consultants saying, how can we kind of like turn our consultant brain on the question of what should our personal charity look like? And that's a super interesting, very important question. But as things like scale, you're asking, well, what do we do with plentiful resources? And, and you get very different answers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess speaking of plentiful resources, what, what do you think of the idea of founding a new university with a kind of long-termist research ethos and, and focus? I mean, that's the kind of thing that could absorb $100 million or potentially much more. I mean, I think that founding new universities with different approaches is a very good idea. I think that a lot of good has come out of the like Western university concept, but that there are also clearly a lot of complaints that people have with it. 
And mm. there is a lot of institutional isomorphism, you know, like in, and there's got to be something better you could do. It is very interesting to observe how similar universities are, like yeah, all of these quirky things that they tend to have in common and like how little of the design space seems to have been explored. Well, and how little, you know, the mentality that they have, right? So it's like, you know, in, in U.S. universities, you know, at Penn, they've just given up on ever being more prestigious than Harvard and Yale. Mm. They're going to be very similar to Harvard and Yale. They're going to be very prestigious, but like a little bit less so. And they're going to just do the same old thing. And most universities are looking up and they're like, well, how can we be just like Penn, but less prestigious than that? And that's odd. I mean, just as somebody who knows a lot of academics, intersects with a lot of academics, but has mostly spent my life in, you know, private business. Normally you're supposed to differentiate your product and try mm. to defeat the competition. And academia doesn't really do that. And I would love to see someone try to create a new institution that shows them all, you know? And it's like yeah. the, the way Leland Stanford did a while ago was like, this is going to be a brand new thing, but it's going to be better. Except now there's been convergence. So Stanford is just mm. the same as every place else. Yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on from the EA long-termism and philanthropy stuff, it'd be good to talk for a minute about a few issues related to actually concretely doing good with your career and what you've learned mm-hmm. about that. Yes, yeah, the first one comes from an audience member and it asks, is Iglesias actually the popular origin of the Yes in My Backyard movement? Uh, because land use policy was personally off my radar completely before his book back in 2012, although some economists had written about it at various points. And then there's been this boom in Yimby groups in the last five to seven years. So what's yeah, what's the what's the causal story here, do you think? I mean, you know, it, it, it's hard to know, and I don't want to overstate my role or give myself too much credit in anything. But as far as I know, Sonia Trauss was the first person to do self-conscious YIMBY organizing out in the San Francisco Bay Area. And she was given money by someone from the technology industry mm-hmm. out there. And I do believe that that early funding came from people who had read stuff that Ryan Avent and I had written. And then we, in turn, were writing about, you know, academic ideas that you can find in Ed Glazer, you can find in William Fischel, uh, that a guy named David Schleicher, who Ryan and I both know personally, had written about on a scholarly level. So, I mean, I, I do like to think that we played a role. Now, I mean, of course, the other question you can always ask in life, right, is there's the, um, there's the direct causal linkage, and there's the like the but for causal yeah what would happen otherwise right and I'm less certain that you know I mean there were two of us who I know of doing sort of popular press takes that were very similar in very similar spaces which makes me think that either of us would have been dispensable and possibly that other people could have come and you know filled those spaces they're definitely not ideas that I you know made up but as 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 far as I can tell, when I'm trying to be self-conscious and reflective about what I do, this is what I try to do is take ideas that exist in the academic realm and that are very neglected in politics and Mm. bring them to more people's attention until the point where someone has done enough with it that it becomes a conventional political conflict that people Mm -hmm. then cover as, well, the Yimbies are fighting against the NIMBYs, Mm -hmm. you know? And at that point, I don't think that political punditry actually does a lot. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that th- that's the most common kind of punditry is like, I'm going to write an article about why the Freedom to Vote Act is good. That strikes me as incredibly low efficacy. Because it's so saturated. It's incredibly saturated, but also it's on the docket, right? I mean, the difference... It's already on the agenda. People are going to think about it. Right. I mean, for actual members of the United States Senate to be taking a vote on an issue is like so far down the chain. And the idea that Kirsten Sinema is going to (laughs) like read my my blog post and be like, (laughs) shit, I've got this all wrong. Like that's an insane level of hubris. And yet Mm -hmm. it seems to be what most people think is like, the humble way to do columnist work when I think it makes so much more sense to just be like, oh, hey, here's a thing. And then maybe one person somewhere is like, oh, maybe I could work on that. Mm. Or one guy who's rich is like, sure, I could kind of check to that. And like, you see where it goes. It's like not that hard to believe that you can convince one of the world's many, many, many wealthy people mm. to like one time fund it, yeah. <laughs> deliver some financial support to something that nobody is doing. That to me is like a so much more realistic aspiration in life. And yet I think in my field, it sounds more egomaniacal to be like <laughs> trying to take credit for some early stage grants than to be like, I'm waging the war of ideas. I'm going to like convince people that Donald Trump is bad. <laughs> like, how would I do that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a very interesting idea. So basically saying it's like the further something is along in this process, the more people have already thought about it, the more people are already entrenched, like the more it's already on the docket. It's just so hard to move the needle at that point because all of the opinions have kind of gotten expressed. But if no one's talking about something and you're the first one to raise it, then you can actually get something that kind of actually might not have ever gotten to anyone's attention or might not have actually gotten the project started. And there you really have made a counterfactual difference potentially. So even if maybe the NIMBY problem was so severe that eventually we would have ended up with the YIMBY movement as we have it, because people just would have noticed how much damage was getting done. But, you know, you writing that book at the right time and other people publishing research when they did might have sped it up by three months, six months, nine months. And trying to suggest lines of action, you know, I mean, because this Mm. is one of the very specific, I mean, this this is pretty deep in the weeds, but like, so Glazer is an economist. He had this analysis of the costs of NIMBYism. Uh, but it's really David Schleicher, who I mentioned, who had an analysis. He had a theory that without changing people's minds or their souls or their interests, that if you elevated these conflicts into state legislatures, that that would make it possible to make progress. And it was Brian Hanlon and I think some others in California took up that idea and ran Mm. with it. And I think they started to have real success there, right? And again, just like helping more people hear a suggestion that like maybe we should try something that literally nobody was trying Mm. versus... You know, when you get to the end of that, you know, so so Scott Weiner is a state senator. He became the champion of this YIMBY legislation. Some of his bills have passed. Some of his bills have not passed. Some of them have gotten the support from the powerful California State Senate president, and some of them mm-hmm. have not. Um, if she wants to call me up and, like, know what I think about things, I would love to have that conversation with her. But I think that trying to exercise leverage at that level Mm. is really hard. But just trying to put in the water the idea that, like, maybe we need to make this a state politics issue rather than a city government issue. Like, why not? Why not give it a try? There's dozens, there's, sorry, not dozens, there's thousands of state senators in America, you know, who could give it a try. Yeah, yeah. 
An interesting question that I've had for a long time. I guess we're, we're slightly talking our book here because both of us do yeah. popularization of ideas trying to make the world a better place. But when we're thinking about this show, for example, mm-hmm. one way that we could have an impact is someone listens to it and makes a grant to something that was kind of off the agenda. Someone changes their career to study an academic research topic that previously no one was thinking about. But there's this other like more diffuse possible impact, which is that we just kind of change how people think in a general way towards thinking more about cost-benefit analysis and thinking mm-hmm. more about actual concrete welfare benefits. And then we don't know whether exactly that will cash out, but hopefully they'll think about foreign policy, for example, better at some mm-hmm. future time because we got them to, to think in such a way that they would start to consider like, well, what are the alternative uses of these resources mm-hmm. rather than just going in for the first thing they think of. But it's so hard to quantify that second more more diffuse thing that I could be like, I think that that affects probably large, but I can't demonstrate that at all. And so I could be completely wrong. Like maybe in fact, like post podcasters and bloggers just don't have much impact on how people think and how they approach problems in a more general way. I mean, I think that's tough, right? I mean, I think that that on some level is the dream, right? Is mm. to say, okay, well, we are shifting mass opinion in some you know, small but really important way that there's this enormous ship and we are we are steering it in microscopic but but important uh, mechanisms. I don't know. I'm not sure that I believe that. Or I think that if we do do that, it is probably mediated by people who do work in mass culture, mm. you know, so that if you convince people that existential risk is an important topic, you might get more movies that treat it as an issue. And then more people will start to think that this is not an insane thing to think about. And particularly if you get multiple cuts at it. So one is like a heavily satirical movie about a comet. But you could also have like a really serious drama about a comet. I know that like my, I shouldn't quite say thinking, it's almost like pre-thinking about COVID was very heavily influenced by Contagion. Uh, Steven yeah. Soderbergh movie Mine too. that like that like I just liked a lot, right? And so when this started, I had a lot of assumptions that the unfolding of COVID nineteen would mirror the events depicted in Contagion, and to some extent, that led me to correct beliefs that the whole mm. Forsythia thing, like that, exactly happened in the real world. At the same time, Contagion really primed me to think that there would be mass panic. Hmm. Right. And that was um, wrong. which is not the case. Right. If anything, it's been the opposite. There's been a elite led effort to get people to worry more, but a lot of indifference and nothing on the scale of like, well, we're going to quarantine the whole city of Chicago and people are going to try to flee. Like absolutely nothing like that has happened. And that's interesting. As far as I know, nobody had ever tried to depict in pop culture a serious pandemic that is somehow not quite serious enough to induce mass panic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, a, it's a weird <laughs> idea, right? Yeah, um, funny movie, but like, yeah. but you know, it had never been there. And one of the things there is that, well, uh, what's it called? Uh, Merv four, whatever in that movie or uh super flu in the stand. Hmm. They're all much more deadly than COVID, right? Somehow let's tell a story about something that is substantially more deadly than other respiratory viruses, but like still not that deadly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Nobody thought of that. Like maybe you couldn't have made it work as drama. Station Eleven is a, is another example. It's now out on HBO, and it's it's weird to see now, right? Like a modern day production of an apocalyptic respiratory virus story. Because mm. you're like, 
But what about what about the respiratory virus that kills millions mm. instead of billions? Well, so could there be a middle ground story, right? Could we scare people about, well, what if it kills hundreds of millions? You know, like, like what's, I don't know. There's, there's a lot, there's more to work with in the creative landscape than yeah. I think we already know. Yeah, yeah. A lot of listeners wanted to ask how you get so much done while also posting so much on Twitter. I mean, I, so I'm a regular Twitter follower of yours. So mm-hmm. I can see that like almost every day you're like spending time bouncing ideas back and forward, like reading stuff, posting it, but you still manage to churn out just so many, so many articles. Yeah. What's, what's the approach? I don't know. You know, I, people like to ask me this question and I always feel like it's a bad question to ask people because I think, because I think that what people would really like to know is do I have productivity tips that will help them at the margin. And I don't. Um, I write very quickly. So that's good for me. (laughs) Um, You know, it's like, it's like a lucky break. And and I'll note, you know, if people pay attention to my writing, the prestigious thing to do in journalism is to write lovingly crafted long form narratives. And I don't do that ever. I think that, you know, there's like a quality time curve Mm. for people's writing. And I go up really fast. And then I hit a shallower, I I hit a lower peak than a lot of the best journalists. But no, but I mean, it's, but that's not a technique. It's like, I have tried to work for a really long time on things and it just doesn't (laughs) get better. Um, I don't have any strong sense of like visual memory. So I can't describe what things look like. I can't paint a compelling scene for people, Um, Mm -hmm. but I'm I'm good at writing fast. So that's why I do that. Yeah, I guess, do you think that there might be kind of a synergy? So you're on Twitter talking to people all the time. It like helps you get, ideas mm-hmm. uh, it helps keep you like motivated because you see these people being wrong and that motivates you to to correct them in your articles is maybe actually like being in the thick of this chaotic conversation actually maybe part of the part of the secret of how you get a lot done I mean, I think within reason, I mean, like everyone, I have allowed myself to be distracted by social media when I should be doing other things. But I find Twitter to be helpful. I think that if you are good at remembering things Mm. that you see quickly, that it just provides an incredible quantity of information. The downside is that it's poorly structured. Mm. So I think for some people that becomes just a just a waste or a muddle or a source of anxiety. But I feel that I learn an incredible amount on Twitter from responses people give to me, from other things that they see, from the people who I follow. I get information about widely held... It's sometimes hard to know what, like, wrong ideas have non-trivial amounts of support in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that kind of helps. So, you know, I, I think it's useful. Yeah, yeah. Do you use any tools to organize and recall information beyond just like your own memory and searching for stuff that you saw? No, I am not a, uh, you know, I mean, I like have a file on the notes app where I put links and I kind of jot stuff down, but I'm not, I don't, I don't have any like great tools. Yeah. Yeah. I think it it might be just very hard to, I mean, that kind of thing fell out of fashion because uh, people just noticed that they were spending so much time organizing their email relative to the value that it was providing. And unfortunately, I suspect for many people who are are flipping between information, like current information so quickly, it just takes too long to organize it (laughs) relative to the benefit you get. And so you just have to deal with your frail memory. That's, yeah. I mean, it is also just, it depends, you know, what, like, what is your actual need? I mean, this is why I I try to make the point about, you know, the many things that people in the writing world would like to do that I think Mm. I don't do well. I don't actually meet a lot of people 
who say that what they would like in life is to be incredibly high volume generalist <laughs> uh, takes guys, yeah. like which is fine. I mean, I I love my life. I think I've been very lucky and and it's successful and and things like that. But you know. There are lots of things to do in the world. And I mostly think, I mean, people should try to do things that will be impactful and that are important and that are useful. But mm. part of that is that you should try to find things to do that you are good at, both because it'll be good, but because it's more sustainable. So you much know? Easier, yeah. I mean, you know, like I, I work long hours. It's become a little like unfashionable to say mm. that working a lot is good because it's like, you're like giving it to the man mm. or something like that. But I like my job. I have a job that I find very easy and fulfilling and rewarding. And that I think a lot of other people though might find incredibly stressful to be like, mm. cause I'm on deadline every single day, right? Yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and I know people who love reporting or love ideas or journalism, but that would, that would bother them. Yeah. Yeah. So you, as you mentioned earlier, you originally studied philosophy. And I think that definitely comes through in your writing, even if you're not writing about philosophy topics. But I haven't seen you have a chance to just directly address some philosophy questions lately. So I had a handful for you. All right. First off, what's your most unusual or most unexpected philosophical position? I mean, this is, I think, going to be like not at all unusual in this, you know, audience's niche. But I mean, I buy into sort of Derek Parfit's criticisms of personal identity. I think that mm. that is correct that, you know, the idea that young you and old you are like, quote unquote, the same person in some way that makes you so special and different from everybody else in the world, mm. that that's really a kind of illusion that mm. when we are being rational and rigorous about the world to try to get behind. And I think that that's a very unusual view in society, even though probably mm. in this audience, a lot of people have heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Is there a philosophical thought experiment that you particularly like that people might not have heard of? Ooh, that people might not have heard of. No, the good ones oh. are the ones that people have heard of. Okay. Um, well, I, I, so <laughs> to, to, slightly, to slightly twist it, I took introduction to philosophy, you know, when I was a freshman, which happened to be soon after The Matrix came out. Mm. And my professor for that very wisely assigned David Chalmers's essay about The Matrix, which is really an essay about the brain and the vat thought experiment, hmm. but he, it's called the matrix as metaphysics. And so he's basically trying to get you to take the brain and the vat hypothesis differently. Hmm. And instead of saying, okay, this is a thought experiment about epistemology. It's a skeptical thought experiment. Maybe everything is wrong. Maybe this is just a fact about the world, right? It's like, what if you, we all at some point in our lives find out that what we think of as solid objects are actually made up of atoms, and those atoms are mostly empty space. And the apparently solid world around us is mostly void. And we mostly don't lose it over that insight. <laughs> We're like, that yeah. is interesting. That is an interesting fact about how the world works. Yeah. And so it could be that the substrate to quarks is some kind of digital representation. Mm. And that's a fact about the world, not everything you think you know is wrong. Yeah, yeah. Is there a particularly underrated philosopher in your view? I guess other, other than Parfit, maybe? Although Parfit's pretty highly rated now. <laughs> yeah. Um, see, I don't know. I was like trying to think of an answer to this question. So I was looking up like ratings of philosophers because I, mm. I was going to say, I really, I really like Quine. I think Quine's underrated. Mm. But I saw this poll. He was like number five. That's like <laughs> the most important philosophers of all time. So I don't think he's underrated if he's at five. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I can say like what has been influential to me is 
I think Parfit, Quine, broadly speaking, I think the David Hume tradition in philosophical thought that is a little skeptical of the enterprise of philosophy. Uh, So I came down eventually to Richard Rorty, who is probably highly rated in general culture because a lot of English professors like him, but I think is in a bad reputation among professional academic philosophers, but whose work I think is very important to me personally. And I think is a good example of how the things that you learn how to do taking philosophy classes can be useful and important in the world, even if the things that people with philosophy PhDs try to get published in journals is maybe not actually that important. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll find something from, uh, from Rorty to link to for people who want to check that out. I guess as is apparent through this conversation, you're reasonably sympathetic to utilitarianism or consequentialism or worrying about like maximizing well-being. Mm-hmm. But famously, I guess, utilitarianism, at least in hypothetical situations, if not in practical situations that we usually face, could endorse violations of human rights or individual autonomy that most people regard as un- unacceptable. Yeah, do you have any preferred way of reconciling intuitions about the importance of well-being with those about the importance of non-interference with others? I think the best way to think about this is that it is prudential, you know, kind of guidelines that, you know, if I do the thought experiment in which I'm killing you and I'm harvesting your organs and I'm giving them to other people, it's stipulated that like, that really is what I'm doing, that I really Mm -hmm. am saving all these people's lives. But that if we thought about, okay, how are we going to set up institutions, right, that are going to function. What is the, like, murder and organ harvesting bureaucracy going to look like? That that's probably a bad road to go down. Um, That there are lots and lots of much more commonsensical interventions we could make to the way our organ donor system works that would increase the availability of life-saving donations, and that there would be something crazy about going to the kill innocent people and steal their organs concept, right? And that somebody who ran around advocating that is actually like not being utilitarian. Well, but I mean, it's not just there's something wrong with their head. They're not being utilitarian, right. But like that, that is not, that is a, that's a crazy way to spend your life, right? Mm. Advocating in favor of that position or actually doing the murders, right? Even if the act could be justified, the opportunity cost is tremendous and it doesn't make any kind of sense. So we have the, uh, which I guess to say, if we're thinking about our intuitions, you say in the thought experiment that like, I have stipulated all these things. But like, we're picturing a guy who what he's doing (laughs) with his time is he's murdering people and he's harvesting their organs. And like, why are you doing that? Right? Like, that's not a compelling utilitarian use of time. And so, you know, I know Christine Korsgaard would tell me that that's a cop out and that I'm not Mm. taking the problem seriously and that I'm a bad philosophy student. But I I think that that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a great frustration to me that you very often see in philosophy classes or just like education about philosophy, books will say or people will say utilitarianism would advocate doing X, like a terrible thing X. And I'm like, literally, I know a lot of people who are utilitarians and like none of them advocate that. All of them think that this is completely misguided. And in fact, the consequences would be very bad. So like, can't you find something that utilitarians actually do think that is bad rather than uh, I mean, to some degree, it's a cop-out because like, or you could construct the situation differently, like yeah, change the conditions such that they would endorse something really bad. But it is interesting that in the actual thought experiments that people make to try to pincer utilitarians, they actually just wouldn't say that in the real world you ought to do the, ought to do the bad thing. I- 
always thought that Nietzsche's critique of utilitarianism, for that reason, is relatively more compelling than mm, the ones that you that? generally hear. Because he takes on things that utilitarians actually say. And he says that, look, this derogation of art and aesthetic greatness is wrong, that this is a philosophy for a nation of shopkeepers, <laughs> that if we imagine we are in Zarathustra's strait of the eternal return, and we're saying, like, what was one great moment that makes it all worthwhile, that the utilitarian doesn't have the answer to that. And I don't know that I agree with those takes, but they, they to me, are like a they recognizably engage with a real with what, controversy. A real person right? like me might think. Right. And so, and, and it gives me pause because I am very comfortable saying at the current margin, people should give money to global public health rather than to their local art museum. But now if you ask me, what if there weren't any art museums? I'd be like, I feel kind of bummed about that. Like that does sound bad to me. Right. Mm. And I'm now retreating to the idea that like, well, we're nowhere near that margin. Right. That like being more EA, being more consequentialist, being more well-being focused would make the world a better place. I'm like 100 percent confident of that. But my confidence goes down if I'm like, well, what go. if everybody listened to the, like, like what if they just <laughs> what if they just sold the Met and they were like, well, we're going to have an apartment building here, you know, Yimby, and we're going to. There just won't, won't be art in America. Like, I'm like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, yeah. I'm grasping for like, well, that's not going to happen. Or, mm. well, when we address all these problems, like actually there'll be more art than ever. And, you yeah. know, I don't know. Maybe deep down uh, you're a pluralist. <laughs> um. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm less, I'm more troubled by the argument because it's mm. a real, it's not asserting that like, Oh, like utilitarians would say that like we should do racism because, you know, it increases people's utils. I'm like, but are (laughs) they saying that? Like, who is actually saying that? Uh, Whereas people really are saying that like pushpins is good as poetry. Like that's an actual like position in Bedlam's text. Yeah, yeah. Okay. As we get to the end of the interview, I've got like one listener question that was extremely popular with the listeners, but I just couldn't find any other way to to, to fit it in. So I'm just going to do it. Basically, yeah, someone wrote in, I noticed Matt strongly advocating for don't let kids miss any school and schooling is super important. But Mm -hmm. I don't know why he thinks that given the arguments that formal education is mostly signaling, particularly coming from Brian Kaplan's argument in The Case Against Education. So for listeners who aren't familiar, Brian Kaplan argued in his book that formal education is much less practically useful than it seems and that one often barely benefits from the things that one learns in formal education. And the reason educated people do so much better in practice is because education is a way of seeming smart and outcompeting other people for jobs, basically. And we talked about that in episode 32 of the show. Is there a simple way to explain why you do think it's very valuable to go to school and like missing school or doing less school is is harmful? Well, so I always thought that Brian was, um, I'm like losing the terminology for this, but he was, he was applying real research conclusions to out of sample situations, mm. right? And he was going from at the existing margins that people operate on, we don't see education interventions making a huge difference to Mm. it doesn't matter if people go to school. And the interesting thing to me about the pandemic, I mean, the reason I found this to be so important was that for reasons outside of the educational domain, we tried something really dramatic, which was like, what if small children just missed a whole year of school? And the impacts there that have been studied seem to have been quite large, Mm. right? And it's an important 
extra data point into the overall argument about education. Now, Brian could say, well, we know that the impacts were very, very large, but also those impacts were very, very short term. And, Mm. you know, we're going to have to see how that plays out over the longer term. So if you have his strong prior, I'm not sure that the one year utterly defeats his argument, Mm. but I think it does tend to undermine it. Um, If you had the previous prior that education is important, this is good evidence for your view. I've been so frustrated with the teacher union interests because I think that they have been missing the forest for the trees here. And they actually are not aware that there is this Brian Kaplan school of thought that like Mm. their work is totally useless. (laughs) And they don't realize that they actually just got an important piece of information in favor of their view on a really important big question. Mm. And they wanted to deride it because it supported their position on a much less significant, much more short-term question about, you know, should they be hurried back to work even when there's community spread, blah, 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 Mm. blah, blah. So that is what I think about that. It it sounds like you thought that Brian was barking up the wrong tree before all of this and that he was underestimating how valuable, you know, a marginal like primary school or, or high school is. Is there a way of like summing up where you think he's reading the evidence wrong? I mean, again, I think that he is too focused on small changes and that you have to look at the rare examples of bigger changes. That um, So there's a study of a school strike in Belgium that lasted a very long time, but it only impacted the French schools, not the Flemish ones, hmm. or maybe it's the other way around. Um, but that study found very large effects, right? So that was why... I was very worried about the school closures from the beginning because I was familiar with some of that literature about drastic disruptions to schooling. I think that he was too... I don't think he's wrong, right? That, like, I think the typical person with high SAT scores worries maybe a little too much about which university they actually attend and what it is they go on and do there. I think he's maybe even also overestimating the signaling Hmm. and that it's just like not that important at all (laughs) Um, what it is you do if you're really, really smart. Because the important thing, like being super smart is very valuable in life. And part of the value of being super smart is that you can like easily recover from screwing up a lot of stuff because Hmm. you'll impress people wherever you show up. And we we kind of have these like weird cultural tropes about this where there's this like diamond in the rough kind of thing. And we maybe worry about that. Like, oh, it's unfair that this like brilliant person isn't as recognized as they are. But someone who's like genuinely brilliant, like they're going to be okay. Like they might be working a terrible job, but like then they'll become the manager and they'll, they'll mm. go up, right? But for policy, we need to worry about like average and below average-ish people. And I think that there's good evidence from schooling disruptions that baseline education makes a lot of difference to people's ability to do basic reading and math, which are things that we know from macro history that like we went from almost nobody could read to almost everybody can read, right? And not enough time passed for that to be an evolutionary change in humans' intellectual capabilities. That was a policy shift and a shift in the availability of books. And that Mm. makes a big difference in people's ability to participate in the modern world. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we've been uh, over the time you agreed. You've been uh, very generous. So actually, final question now. What is the wrongest thing you've ever advocated for? 
the wrongest thing I've ever advocated for. Yeah, the wrongest or the worst thing you've ever like accidentally uh, been a strong proponent of. Oh, um, invading Iraq. Uh, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Any others? Any others? I mean, it's hard to narrow it down to like one super specific thing. Yeah. I think that I used to be on the other side of a lot of the debates about polling and public opinion that, mm. that we were talking about before, that yeah. I was a big proponent of the kind of, um, you know, people are yearning for all of my ideas kind of kind of thing. And I mm. think that I contributed in a meaningful way to creating some of the conventional wisdom that I'm now against. Yeah. All right. Well, my guest today has been Matthew Iglesias. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast. Matthew. Thank you. Thank you. This is great. One thing Matt mentioned earlier is his attempts to eat less meat. And in that spirit, I wanted to mention a new fellowship with the Reducitarian Foundation, which aims to help more people do just that. It's designed for undergrads, includes workshops, and a summer internship with one of the foundation's many partner organizations. And each fellow will also get a $7,500 stipend. You can apply for that at reducitarian.org slash fellowship hyphen apply. Speaking of opportunities for impact, a final reminder that 80,000 Hours itself is hiring career advisors and someone new to lead on the job board. You can find out a lot more about both of those roles and what it's like to be one of my colleagues over at 80,000hours.org slash latest. Do that soon though, because those vacancies close on the 20th and 27th of February respectively. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.